Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Kyle Serafin Show. Today is Thursday, August the 17th, and we have a very special treat for you today. We have an interview from an American in Moscow, something that you may not expect to hear, and certainly something that uh, I thought was worth our time once uh, once Tara and I had a conversation the day before. So, ladies and gentlemen, stick around for that. First, we want to say thanks to our sponsors. We want to say thank you to Catholic Vote. Go to catholicvote.org and you will get The Loop. The Loop is their email. You know how to get there, catholicvote.org. You will fill in your email address, your name, your zip code, and what will you get? Today's news, useful information that you can go forth and know more things in the world. Today's Loop, let's see it right here. Today's Loop has... Federal courts ending mail-order abortion pills. The United States Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit has really been coming through in a big way. Uh, Stories about Alabama passing school choice. Fantastic stuff. Americans want to protect kids from pornography. 83% of a national poll shows. There's a story about that. Catholic preschools suing the state of Colorado. Leftists defending disgraced teachers after an assault in Santa Barbara. This is a really good story uh, coming from Daily Wire and Luke Rosiak. Uh, Target continuing its long-term collapse with their LGBTQ, LGBTQ, why do we have so many letters in that, themed closing line. Folks, check out The Loop. You can get in there and get lots of useful information that will start your day off. We do really appreciate them. Again, catholicvote.org. And today, we announce for the first time, despite all of the, uh, the delays, we now have Suspendables Merch. I'm not even sure what all is in there. I've looked at the store. It's going to be continuing to add. There's going to be some new additions in the next week. Our friend Gerardo Boyle, G-O-B, actual on Twitter and True Social. Gerardo Boyle has come through with a web page that you all can go to. That's H-T-T-P colon slash slash the dash suspendables.com. Again, go to the dash suspendables.com. .com. It's just like it sounds. And you'll find Suspendables merch. There's t-shirts there. Looks like there's going to be some lapel pins if you want to go out there and support it as you move around in a little bit dressier clothes. Gentlemen, if you want to put something on your lapel and let people know that you are suspendable, uh, check it out. And as he said, exercise your First Amendment through your attire until you cannot do so any longer. The-suspendables.com. Folks, thanks for... Uh, Thanks for supporting us, and that is going to be supporting Garrett and his family, but also our new foundation, which we're putting out. We're going to have some very unique and uh, limited edition stuff that's going to go out there and support the 501c4 that is in the process of being activated at this moment, the-suspendables.com. Okay, without any further ado, I want to say, uh, folks, tuck in for this one. It's a long conversation. I think you're going to get information that you probably haven't heard anywhere else, at least in this format. I haven't, and I've spoken to to Tara long form. So without further ado, Tara Reed from Moscow. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very excited about this interview. We are speaking to Tara Reed. She is in Moscow. That is not America. She is speaking to us here live in Liberty Hill, Texas, and we are going to get to the bottom of what has been called a defection, which I think is probably the wrong word. 
Uh, we made this connection again. So uh, Tara and I have talked a number of times over the last few months. She reached out to me yesterday, and I knew that this story was something you all should hear as well. So we're going to get to the bottom of what's going on with her situation, and I'm going to debunk any of the myths that have been put out there in the mainstream media, and there are many of them. Uh, we're going to get the whole story here. So, folks, I think you're going to really want to tune in. Clear your schedules. I don't know how long this will take, but uh, let's get going. And, uh, Tara, thanks for joining me at such a late hour. What time is it right now? Oh, it's like, you know, 1045 or so at night. It it's is okay. late. So I appreciate you staying mm -hmm. up late. People stay up late in uh, Russia. It's not even Europe. What, what do we call that? Eurasia? <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's it's the East, I guess. But Russia, Russia is, uh, you're right, though. It does get light early, like at three or four in the morning, it starts getting light. Um, so, yeah. So uh, and in St. Petersburg, it stays light. They have white nights and it stays. I was there for white nights. It's quite beautiful. It's light almost until two, three in the morning. It's quite lovely. That's kind of like what goes on in Anchorage, I guess. Is it that far up? Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I never think of it as that far up, but I guess that makes sense. All right. Um, before we get too far afield, because I will just get sideways and we'll just start chatting. Let's tell people who you are and why they know your name and what sort of the, the prequel of the story is, and then we're gonna get into the nitty gritty of it as long as you'd like to tell it. Um, but start with maybe where you grew up. I, I read a quick bio on you, some things I didn't know, like you'd lived in Wisconsin. Maybe tell us the story of growing yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, I, I was uh, I was born in Monterey, California, uh, Monterey County, California. And uh, my parents moved when I was a baby to Wisconsin and had a farm. My father owned a business, and so he was a, what you call a gentleman farmer, if you will. And uh, my mom had like an acre, organic garden and uh, we had 80 acres and lots of animals and it was a very nice upbringing. I don't think I even had fast food until I was 15 years old because we were really living off the land. We had beef cattle, our neighbor had dairy cattle. So it was quite a wholesome upbringing and I had um, a couple of brothers. My, my, you know, my family had its ups and downs and uh, my parents divorced when I was 13. And my father was a defense contractor uh, I became a defense contractor. He also was the president of PR for Honeywell. And so he was pretty establishment. My mother, on the other hand, was an artist and she was um, uh, not um, establishment at all. And she was an activist and uh, anti-war and marched uh, and then also helped uh, boys go to Canada uh, to avoid the Vietnam draft. Um, although my brother served, Michael, he was a conscientious objector. Um, but he did go um, overseas um, during the Vietnam War. He was quite a bit older than me. And uh, my brother, Michael, unfortunately died when I was um, uh, young. Uh, and uh, he and I were very close. So it was a, it was a really hard time for me when he, when he died. But my mother um, was quite, you know, she was quite the activist and, you know, very outspoken and, uh, you know, and, and, and a guiding force. And so, I kind of had political cognitive cognitive dissonance, if you will. I had a great grandmother that was a communist, and I had Republicans, and I had, um, but mostly Democrats um, in my family. And uh, I went on very interested in politics um, as well as acting. I was in acting and classically trained when I was young, and my first professional work was when I was 16. It was as as a writer. Um, and an actress. I wrote some poetry that was published and that was my first paycheck ever. And then after that, I did modeling and acting um, professionally, I moved out of the house. And um, then, you know, I was really needing to feed the intellect and was really into political science and geopolitics. It was just always a fascination. And I was a, like a de debate 
person in high school and went to state with debate. I mean, I was really into it. So um, I had this opportunity in college. I was approached by one of my professors and they said, hey, there's an internship with Leon Panetta's office. And I think that you might fit the bill for it if you want to try to apply. And um, so I did and I was hired and um, and I went and worked for him. And then I, after the internship, I was trained um, in campaigns and worked as a democratic operative. And then I went on and worked for Joe Biden. And you, uh, before we jump into that, will you give people context of Leon Panetta, what he was doing? I think a lot of people know the name and don't know who he is. And then maybe what you mean by the word political operative, which I hear a lot, but I don't have a great idea of what it means. Mm, okay. Um, well, you have different roles in campaigns. Um, I was a field manager and I was more in strategy of, you know, how to win that congressional campaign. So I was, I was um, working on that and overseeing volunteers, hundreds of volunteers, and also strategy of how to win it. And, um, you know, we're trained by different organizations, think tanks, they come in and they do trainings and um, teach you how to do that. Uh, I really enjoyed doing that work. Um, there are other people that do campaign opposition research. That's a little more, that's the, that's the hit things that you see. I'm not really, I wasn't really, even back then I didn't like that kind of thing, mm -hmm. but there are other people that that's their, you know, wheelhouse. Uh, but overall it's like, it's almost like a, they even call it a war room when you're running a campaign. It's, it's very much like war. You're dealing with strategy and you're trying to win. And, uh, and you do what it takes to do that. As far as Congressman Panetta, he was, well, I just said it, he was a Congressman representing, he's from Carmel Valley, California. I was born in Monterey, as you know, so it's in that same district. And back then it was district there. And he represented that area before he went into the CIA. He was a, also a former White House uh, chief of staff for Bill Clinton, um, but left, and I believe he left in disgust. So. Um, my time at uh, Leon Panetta's was unremarkable. I mean, I learned a lot, but he was really, you know, a very, uh, a kind of person that seemed very serious about his work. He would stay up late reading the bills. There was no nonsense in his office, not like with Joe Biden. And um, he was, uh, he was an interesting person. I disagree with a lot of his positions, particularly on war. And, you know, as it stands right now, he's on the board of Raytheon, which is a mm -hmm. missile company. So, and so when you see him comment about Ukraine and be really, you know, forceful about that, just remember he's lining his pockets. So, you know, and he was the secretary of defense uh, and uh, as well as the CIA. So so obviously yeah. very entrenched in the uh, the military industrial type world. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Um, now, I want to I want to dig into a little bit of this. You gave us kind of a, a taste of your dad was a military defense contractor. You said, did I get that right? Mm -hmm. And mom correct. is an activist. Who yes. do you think you took after, or did you take a little bit of both? Um, I took after my mother, I guess, as far as because I did work for traditional Democrats and in the, I wanted to work in the Senate. I wanted to run for office eventually. Then I guess I, you know, there's a little bit of my dad there too. So yeah, little, you know, working within the system to make change. Okay. okay I enough. didn't like marching. I wasn't the type that liked to hold signs or march. That wasn't my thing. So. Instead of that, you like to work in the office end and actually execute strategy, it sounds like. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I like to work so, behind the scenes and do all that. So you've gone from intern, we've gone into a operative working on uh, campaign work. And then what was the, the door that opened that allowed you to go to work for Joe Biden? I was actually hired at the interview, which is 
you know, I thought that was normal, but apparently that's not. Um, but I did a phone call interview with the scheduler and then was, and, uh, and then someone else jumped on the line. I think the one of my other supervisors who became my supervisor, um, and I can't really recall, but then I um, flew out for the final interview and I was sitting and being interviewed and Joe Biden breezed in uh, with a couple of the, his staff and um, her office was like right next to his and kind of out in the open. So he had to walk past her to get to his door. And uh, he just looked at me and, and, and our conversation and he interrupted and introduced himself. And uh, and she basically, Marianne basically said, uh, who was the scheduler, she said, um, oh, this is Tara Reed. And, and he said, oh, an Irish name, Tara, you know. And then he's, um, she said he, she worked for, she worked for uh, Leon Panetta as an intern. And he said, oh, Leon, he's a great guy. He's a good man, good man. And then he looked at me and he, just looked at me and looked back at her and said, um, you should hire her. You know, she's hired. So, and, and, and then that was, he that, was that. that. Yeah. He left, he like moved away. And then she looked at me and said, okay, so you're hired. And I'm like, okay. And that, that's and not common. You're saying, huh? That's not common. Apparently. Apparently not. I thought it was like, I, you know, I left and, you know, being in my twenties, I thought, Oh, okay, cool. You get hired at the interview. That never <laughs> happened again in my life. Um, so yeah, that was, that was interesting. We have a picture, I think of your ID badge from that era. This is when you were working for Leon Panetta. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Ryan, we pull up the, the picture of the ID badge just for kind of funds, just kind of vintage setup if you can. Yeah. Give me one second. I got to track it down. I'll get it. Okay, no problem. And then there's also, we have a, a photo from probably about that era, I'm thinking, where you have the long hair and the red dress on. So we're going to throw a couple of photos up from that kind of time frame. And so you, you get hired right at the interview. Uh, there's there's that photo. Look at that. So there that was your congressional ID as an intern, I think. Does that sound right? Correct. And you have the curly yeah. hair there. And so you get hired right off the spot. You don't know any better. Did you go back and talk to your colleagues in that space and hear about different hiring stories? I know the FBI, we always compared notes. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting because I left, right? And a friend was waiting for me and they expected to just like, because I traveled there to just, we would go out to dinner and just like see the sites or whatever. And I was like, well, I got the job. And he was like, he was amazed. He was like, what? You know, you got it at the end. And I said, yeah. And then he, he said, well, let's go celebrate. Let's go to New York. So we went to New York city and we celebrated, um, took the train up and had fun and met other friends and, and uh, celebrated. And then I went back to uh, California and packed up my world and moved to DC. And thus began the great adventure in many ways. What did you see, if you can think back to that time, what did you think you were embarking on as far as a life? Because I'm sure it went differently. Oh, I thought I, it was the beginning of my career. I was very enthusiastic. At that point, you know, Joe Biden was very powerful in the Senate. He was the chairman of judiciary, chairman of the foreign relations. I was really fascinated with um, the foreign relations committee, with um, anything to do with geopolitics. And I wanted to eventually run for um, Senate if I could or Congress. So I, I looked at him as, you know, he's about my father's age at that time um, as a mentor, mm -hmm. frankly. And, um, you know, so I was very kind of starstruck that I got to work in the Senate. I was so proud to serve my country. I was so proud to, to be in public service. It's what I always wanted to do. And so, yeah, I felt like I was in the right place. You know, that feeling like, oh, this is it. This is the right place to be.
And what about the people you worked with? What was the climate in the office, uh, the other staffers? That was interesting because um, right away I got the vibe um, that there was a lot of unhappiness and it was very top down. And the chief of staff um, is Ted Kaufman. And Ted Kaufman, um, now I know more about his background. He's from DuPont Corporation mm -hmm. and was very high up in that. And he runs it like kind of that, like a very kind of a corporate kind of feel. Um, also, Biden has you're given um, each office is given the same amount of money, but they allocate it the way they wish. The chief of staff is responsible for that. And Biden's office was 49th out of 50 in pay. So oh. we're, yeah, for all the staffers, because my pay was very low. It was very hard to live on the wage that they gave us um, to, because they kept it top heavy. So like the Ted Kaufman got a lot of money and Dennis Toner and some of the other upper level, but um, you know, you know, uh, other, staffers and legislative aides, we were paid very little. So it was interesting. Well, you um, always, you hear people, sometimes they say you get paid uh, in salary and sometimes you get paid with the title. It sounds like they were right. hoping you were getting by with the title and you were excited about your right. resume. And you had, you had a lot of privilege there. You had a lot of people that were trust funders. I think this was sort of the beginning of that era that you have back East where, where the media and where the politics are run by these, you know, barons of industries, children, right? Like they're, they're privileged. They've gone to all the right schools. Like, you know, they would have conversations about the different Ivy league schools they went to. I went to community college and, um, you know, I am, and my mother was, uh, highly educated, but self-educated. My father did go to Colgate, but you know, that's neither here nor there. He, he, um, I don't consider that really an Ivy league school. Um, and he had to actually go back and get to his master's. So, you know, I think it's interesting that uh, there was a lot of snobbery around that on the Hill, even back then, like who went to Brown and who went to Harvard and such. So that, I think that era started and it was really starting in. And now you see that with the media where you see media people where they're coming from these Ivy League schools and they have no idea how to do real journalism. They're just, you know, they've had a, a very different life. You're touching on something that has been very dear to my heart. My, people like Matt Taibbi and, and even my father, who was in media for a long time, always talked about journalism being a blue collar profession where people would go and try mm -hmm. to hold the powerful to account. And now it yeah. seems like they uh, they just want to uh, pad their friendships that they have with them. How did you fit into that culture? Did you uh, did you get along with your colleagues? Well, I got I got along. OK, I just didn't try to fit in. I remember, too. I kind of had the attitude because, I you know, I, at this point, I'm 28 years old, 27 years old, and I. I already had the, you know, you know, I'd been on movie sets and film sets and different work environments and then worked in campaigns. I didn't necessarily socialize with the people I worked with. Now they did, they all socialized with each other, but I kept a little bit of a distance. And I think there wasn't even a hit article written about that, but I wasn't an outlier or an outsider. I simply didn't think it was a good idea to go. And I wasn't a drinker. I don't really drink alcohol. I don't do drugs. And a lot of the people in that culture at that time were doing uh, cocaine. They were doing drugs. They were doing um, drinking and they were partying and they would even do it at the house in the Senate. And especially on long nights when there was bills and stuff, you'd see a lot of drinking and stuff. And I, I just wasn't part of that culture. It makes a lot of sense. Once so, in a while I did. Once in a while, you know, I did my wild whatever, went to the Irish pub and, you know, whatever. But I wasn't like an angel. But I just mean it wasn't a regular practice. It wasn't something that I sought out to do. It wasn't like, oh, this Friday night, this is all I want to do.
Sure. What do you I was want? social. I also had built because of Congressman Leon Panetta. I had built a friendships with some girls that um, we we lived in this place called the nunnery. They called it. They nicknamed it Thompson Mark. Markwood Hall, Markson Hall, and we, it was girls only and boys were not allowed up after nine o'clock. <laughs> of course, women snuck their boyfriends up because we were in their twenties, you know, whatever, but it's we like were, it was stuff. Like, like college. And, um, and so I made some really good friends. In fact, I'm still friends with some of them today. Um, well now it's a little more difficult, but, but you know, carried on for decades, our friendship, you know, because you're living in that dorm and then you're all walking across the street to the sun at the house. And it was supposed to be the safe place like in DC because DC was seen as so dangerous during that time. It was considered a very dangerous city. There was even like a headline article about that at that time. And what's ironic about that is the actual predators were in Congress. Let's yeah, let's talk about that. First of all, give me, give me the, the feeling of living in DC at the time, having worked in there, I have a sense of what it looked like, obviously in the last 10 years or so, but I'm curious, how was it at that point? What, what was the street level crime looking like? What was the experience of moving around in Northwest near where all the, uh, the seats yeah. of power are? There was a lot of um, a homeless during that time, homeless families, homeless children. In fact, I was a volunteer for Hill staffers for the hungry and the homeless. And um, it was really kind of, you know, it didn't, that organization didn't do much. I mean, we tried, but like it was, it was really, really uh, dire poverty right around the hill. Like, I mean, you're talking people living in shacks with no electricity, no running water and children with bare feet, um, real poverty. I saw a lot of real bad poverty um, when I was there. And I noticed that. Maybe some of my friends didn't, they were more into the, you know, social scene, but I was noticing it when I would go into a restaurant, I would see right outside there was homeless. And this is before other cities, you know, started really seeing a lot of homeless. And I think Washington DC was one of the first places that you really saw greater numbers. And um, so you already saw the economic divide happening in DC. And then you saw, of course, you know, the people that are in their bubbles, they don't even notice the poverty around them, um, the very wealthy and the diplomats and whatnot that live in their bu bubbles, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as far as, you know, uh, the atmosphere for women, it was changing, but it was still, we were very objectified, um, or at least I was to extent. And um, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of, bad behavior, if you will, um, on the Hill. And, and uh, you know, some women participated in that themselves and some didn't want to. And so the ones that didn't want to didn't last long, right? Hmm. I would say that there was a, a lot of that kind of behavior and, you know, objectification. Can you get specific about what we're talking about, bad behavior? I don't have to have names per se, but I'm curious of examples of what we're talking about, uh, you know, whether it's liaisons or parties or whatever, but like, so people get an idea because you're giving people a look behind something that they don't ever get to experience. Yeah. They suspect it, I think. But. You know, when I was at Thompson Markwood Hall, you know, at one point I brought my car out from California, being a Californian, we, I took the Metro, but we love our cars, you know how we are. So I was like often the designated driver because I didn't really drink. And um, I, or like if we went far out, I was like the person that would drive or pick up someone that was in a bad situation. Mm -hmm. And um, I got a call, um, 
you know, and we had beepers back then, by the way, this is oh, like yeah. old. Time. So I know, I was just 90s. thinking, this is, everyone's <laughs> thinking of Ubers, but there's no Ubers, there's taxi cab yeah, only, there's the Metro. Yeah. yeah, no, cell phones weren't as common with that. So, so then um, I went out and the young, there was a young girl who was in the hallway, um, who was in the, excuse me, the, the uh, place, the hall with me, you know, that, that residence. And she called hysterical crying drunk whatever and um when i when i got a hold of her and she was at a payphone and in the middle of nowhere and it was like really late at night i woke up my other friend from the other room and said you know you're coming with me and we're going to go get her and i don't want to say her name That's but fine. she had had a consensual affair with a very prominent republican senator and um i won't say his name right now it's in my book Mm -hmm. And I lead to it someday. I'll, I'll reveal who it was, but very prominent. You'd know the name. And he had had an affair with her and she was totally enthralled and thought he was going to leave his wife and be with her. And she's like 22. She was younger than me. And, um, and she was anyway, she was crying drunk. Her stockings were all torn. He had apparently she'd made a scene and he dumped her off just in the middle of, um, somewhere in Virginia, just like on the side of the road and dumped her. And so I took her, you know, we took her in and I was like the whole time I was sort of sympathetic, but then also I was hoping she wouldn't barf in the car. You know, I was having those thoughts mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that we do when we're getting our friends out of messes. And the next day, you know, she was really, really heartbroken. I didn't really even realize. I just thought she was drunk until later how heartbroken she was. And uh, I was walking down the hall and this young staffer walked up to me and he said, good job. Thanks for that. And I'm like, what? And he goes, cleaning up that mess. And then he walked away. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm part heartless. of the problem. Yeah, I'm part of the problem. Yeah. So she ended up going back to her home state and not returning. And she was a very young intern who fell in love with, um, you know, her boss, I guess, and had sexual relations. And he dumped her on the side of the road. So can you, can you talk about, so this is totally foreign to me. So I'm, I'm both curious, mm -hmm. but also a little bit, uh, a little bit horrified by it. Um, there is a culture of women that are very attracted to, to particularly unattractive men who have power that are much older mm -hmm. than them. Can you talk yeah. about it? Especially because it sounds like you were kind of a dispassionate observer. And I'd love to hear your response and just seeing some of your younger colleagues, young, pretty idealistic, you know, how does that yeah. work? I mean, there were many like that, um, that thought, I mean, you, two, you have to remember at the time period in the 90s, there's still this thought or traditional theory that women were to get married and have babies and and that powerful men were the way you go. It's almost like biological, right? They go for the biggest wingspan and the birds. And sure. in this case, they're going for the, for the most power. I look at it dispassionately probably because I was estranged from my father for most of my life. So I didn't have what you would call daddy issues. I didn't have. I, do, I didn't idolize a daddy and I didn't think I needed one, if you know what I mean saying. So mm -hmm. I just I just wanted a partner. I wanted like um, I wanted a guy who was equal to me and could handle me. But I didn't want necessarily in fact, all the men I dated were my age or even a little younger. Um, so I didn't want an older dude. Uh, that's just me. I just didn't find them attractive. And um, but some of my friends did and they just did. They they found that alluring, maybe the way they dressed, maybe the way whatever it was that attracted them. I, it's always been a mystery to me, um, <laughs> but but they did. Um, there were several that were just what you're saying. They were actually 
doing a job kind of hunting for a husband or a powerful lover that could take them to the next level rather than just relying on their own skills, which, which is kind of sad. Well, I'm, I'm reflecting on this, this sort of uh, cultural phenomenon and pretty mm-hmm. woman was released in 1990, the famous Julia Roberts movie oh, yeah. with Richard Gere. And, and mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, I see a lot of the parallels there. You know, he's rich, he's powerful. He's, he's kind of dashing. He's got gray hair, even at a younger age, you know, and, and she's Office young and gentlemen. Right. Yeah. And, and there is that phenomenon that was kind of um, an archetype or a mythology that existed in the 90s, maybe, you know, and that is kind of a throwback thing. I mean, it's almost vintage 50s kind of thing where women were looking for that, that kind of hero, but it wasn't a knight in shining armor. Think about uh, what was it, Bonnie Tyler that did uh, I Need a Hero, right? Mm-hmm. It was the mm-hmm. same kind of time. And so that's what we're describing. And, and, and I just want people to get into that mindset because it is so different than 20 plus years, 30 years from now. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like they would make jokes in front of us about sex or whatever, or like they would tell us, you know, to go get the beer, go get the wine, bring it to the, you know, I remember carrying cases of beer up to Panetta's office for the other staffers. He wasn't doing that, but it was his, you know, staff mm-hmm. and, um, make, and they'd make jokes about, they'd go through like the resumes and, and like try to, you know, and, and joke about what the women looked at. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and some of it, I didn't, you know, I grew up with brothers. So I grew up with three brothers and I didn't have a sister to, to you know, um, so I know how men behave and I didn't think too much of that. Like I wasn't, I'm not, I don't like the word feminist, but I wasn't like a hardcore feminist, but I did want to be appreciated for my intellectual abilities and my skills and my analytical skills. And um, that definitely wasn't happening when I was 27, 28 years old, so no. All right, you, you mentioned earlier, predators weren't on the streets, they were in the halls of Congress. Let's uh, let's go there and kind of dig into that a little bit. We talked about the culture now. Um, you had a very unique experience with that, and I know some people have asked questions about it. You and I yeah. have talked about it. Uh, let's, let's lay it out for people, what the allegation was, what the, you know, so they can make up their own mind uh, about your story. Sure. Yeah, you know, I, um, well, it started off like this, you know, I didn't have any kind of rapport or relationship with Joe Biden. I met him, you know, I was a low level staffer, so I had, you know, a little bit of contact with him, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. He was there daily on and off. And sometimes he'd be traveling. There would be like a whole week. I wouldn't see him, whatever. Um, and there'd be other times where I'd see him twice or three times in a day, you know, it just depended. Um, I wouldn't necessarily interact with him. It wasn't like a, a flirtation or a relationship like you heard about, like with Monica Lewinsky or some of those things, nothing like that sure. um, yeah. at all. And so I thought of him, this office, not so much him per se, but the office as like a mentoring place where then I would make, you know, my next move. Like I would work here for a while and then move up. And that quickly changed um the reality of that he started making like when i would see him at a meeting he would put his hands on me um put his hands on my shoulder and then he would rub my neck underneath my hair with his thumb and he would just put you know he just didn't have any kind of sense of space for people and it was really unusual no boundaries. Yeah. And I, and, and we didn't really use the vernacular back then like that. It was just, yep. it was odd. I just remember being like, God, okay. Panetta never did anything like that. Like I can't even imagine him doing anything like that. So, so I, and I only have that to compare to. Right. Mm-hmm. So then, um, uh, he kept 
doing things like that at different times. And then there was an incident where I walked in to where Marianne was sitting and there was an argument between um, Genevieve Cullen, one of the staffers and her and another staffer, um, Tracy, um, who was the assistant to Marianne. And they were all arguing about the fact that Joe Biden wanted to have me serve drinks because he liked my legs and he thought I was pretty. And Hold on. Um, so who, who's having this argument? These are two women discussing what Joe Biden had said to them. Right. And so Gen Genevieve was sticking up for me and she turned to me and she was like in the heat of it. And she goes, Tara, you don't have to do that. That's not your job. And I'm like, okay. And I, it was like one of those moments where, and then everyone kind of looked at me. I was like, there's nothing I can say that's going to be right. Anything I say is going to be wrong in this, in this moment. And I just kind of froze. And um, Marianne said, you know, she gave me a look like she had this way of giving you a look like when she was trying to get you to do what you're supposed to do. She was my supervisor. Right. And so I just stayed quiet. And then, um, you know, Genevieve talked to me by myself and then, and then Marianne took me in the hallway and she said, you know, you've got to just keep your head down and, you know, you go along to get along, you know, that kind of, the kind of pep talk, right? Like this is, you know, you should take this as a compliment, you know, like he, he noticed you and you should, you know, whatever. And, and, and you're what, 28 years old? Like this. Um, I'm sorry. You're about 28 at the time. Is that? Yes. 27. What about this, yeah. this picture that we're flashing up on the screen you sent over? What, what, what age was that? You think? That was the same age. I was, it was like, in fact, it was taken a month before I went to Biden's office. Okay. So, so just so people, this is, this is the hair. This is what the, the look is that you've got. This is the, this is the era. I'm looking at the clothes. Even the clothes is kind of reminding me of the nineties too. Mm -hmm. And, and so, uh, and how old is this, this woman who's your boss that's telling you what is she, she's fifties. Okay. 50s. So she's kind of matronly and she's giving you, this Older. is how it works. This is what you do. Mm -hmm. Then, um, I went home, of course, talked to my mom and my mom was furious. And she goes, that's, she labeled it. She goes, that's sexual harassment. That's not okay. And I'd been calling her about him putting his hands on me and feeling like weird, not knowing how to handle it. And it put me in a weird situation in the office with other people. You know, it was just a weird thing. What did and mom say? Then, <clears throat> What was she saying? What, what would your mother say about that? Because that's... Well, she was furious. She said I needed to make a complaint right then. Like she was telling me right then to take action, to put put my foot down. So I did in a sense. I, I said, no, I'm not going to serve drinks. I didn't want to do it. Marianne was furious with me. We had several, I call them our hall meetings. She would take me out in the hallway and like scold me and tell me everything um, that I was supposed to be doing. And you know, my mom was very fierce and very activist. And at this point, I was a little more uh, timid about that kind of thing. Like I was more careful and I really wanted a career. And I was trying not to make this a huge deal. I just wanted it to go away. Right. I just thought if I just am quiet, it'll just go away. And then but then by refusing, that sort of sent a message. And then things got really icy in the office. And so I went to talk to the chief of staff. And and told him, you know, I, I didn't like it, you know, and was this um, event that yeah, this event you turned down, was this a specific um, party of notoriety or was it just like a, a Thursday night kind of thing? I, mean, I don't even know what it was. It was like one of those. I can't I think I remember it as like a fundraising. So offsite, it would have been offsite. I know mm -hmm. that. But I, I remember it's kind of being a fundraising, but I'm not sure. And you're not allowed to have fundraising on the Hill at that point in that. So it was like something that was being done. But they but they would often have, um, you know, they'd have staff do things differently than what their roles were. But this was 
it, it's just the way he presented it. It was not okay. So, okay. So that went by, right. But then things get really frosty. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm being sort of frosted out and, but it's, it's the kind of environment where it's all hands on deck. It's not as rigid as it is now where everyone has their roles. I, you know, they were, you know, everybody would have to pitch in to different offices. Like for instance, I was helping the assistant press secretary. I would go through speeches and do some editing. I would go take notes at a hearing. You know, we, it was just all hands on deck, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was doing that. I was actually correcting something on the, um, some uh, document or whatever. And I get this frantic, you know, ask from Marianne, she comes running in, which she usually never does, um, to where I was and said, um, can you please take this? He, he forgot it. It was his gym bag and take it to him. And I, and I remember him, my him being time. Joe Biden. Yes. And, and yeah, him, he's him. So, so yeah, so I had to go. Um, so I go, you know, running after him towards the Capitol. And um, as I'm going down, I remember like, I, I remember flashes. I don't remember exactly where I am. And one of the things that I've been careful about is because every day I worked there and took sometimes different routes, sometimes the same, but it's like trying to remember the exact route I took. But I remember I went downstairs. I remember my shins, I had my heels on. I, I wasn't wearing like, sometimes you'll throw on tennis shoes or different shoes because of the marble floors, because they hurt. But anyway, I remember my shins hurting. I remember that, um, that distinctly, like more of the physical stuff and going down, chasing him down basically. And he's ahead of me. I see him, he's talking to someone, they walk away. And then we're like in this corridor um, near the Capitol, because we're going, you know, remember this is the, the, he is coming from the Senate building, from the Russell building. So then, um, you know, I'm just focused on getting him this gym bag, right? And then going back to what I was supposed to have this document done, and I was really focused on that document. But I was also kind of like, oh, okay, I'm going to see Joe Biden and hand him a gym bag, you know, whatever. Um, and then was he that, said- Was that a remarkable thing for you? At that moment, would that have been a remarkable experience for you in any way? Well, I mean, not so much, but but like because I had just seen him at, a, at another meeting and I was already kind of like not sure how I felt about him. I was already kind of like half liked him and half thought he was a little there was something off. Mm -hmm. So I had mixed emotions, let's put it that way. Is it but uh, was, good to have FaceTime with the senator when you're working in the office at a low level? Is that a, a Oh, it's huge. It's huge. But my interactions low level were kind of weird. That's so I wasn't sure what this was going to be. And I was right to worry. Um, so anyway, I handed him the gym bag and and said, um, you know, here you go, Senator. I called him Senator. I didn't call him Joe. And he recognized my name. You know, he said my name. And then um, next thing I knew, and this part is really hard for me to describe because it wasn't like... It wasn't like sequential. It was just all at once. I was up against a wall and I remember the coldness of the wall. And I remember, you know, I remember him being underneath my clothes, like underneath my shirt, underneath my skirt. Like he was just, and you know, I had absurd thoughts. I thought, where's the gym bag? Like, I remember thinking that, you know, which is an absurd thought, but that's one of my vivid memories. And, um, and he, and I think I just didn't want what was happening to be happening. And so he was saying things to me and I can remember some of it, not all of it. And he was kissing me and leaning in and it was, 
um, and I was trying to pull back and I was, and I remember the smell and there was a smell that I didn't like. It was like a dry cleaning smell. And even when I talk about it, I get nauseous. Like there's this, a particular smell that if I ever smell it, I get like immediately like ill, but like, I didn't want him near me. And, um, and he was forcing it and, uh, he used his leg to spread my legs and, um, he was saying he wanted to go, you know, he wanted to fuck me. And he, he said he got very graphic and he said other things. And how loud is he, he was, speaking? Oh, he very softly. It was like in my ear, he was kissing me and doing it like in my ear. And that's why it almost sounded in my mind echoey because it was like right in my ear. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and kissing me and I'm pulling away this, you know, like away and he doesn't seem to be taking those signals. And then he penetrated me with his fingers and, um, I managed to pull away. And I remember, you know, my whole body was like shaking because it wasn't just what he was doing, but it was like, uh, he was, you know, it was him and, you know, he had a lot of power and it was just really frightening. And I just didn't want to be part of what he was doing. And I was saying no. And, um, you know, he immediately did this thing that's really disconcerting. He smiles when he's angry, which is very disconcerting. I think and a lot of I, Americans have seen that recently. He he smiles when he's very angry. And mm -hmm. um, he, he used to do it like in meetings, if he was pissed off at somebody or somebody pissed him off, he would smile and then say something through his gritted teeth. So anyway, at first he was saying, come on, man, I heard you liked me. And then, um, in my mind, I'm thinking, what did I do wrong? How did I get in this position? Immediately, I'm starting to think about like all my behavior. Like, what did I do? How did I get to this, right? To this moment. And then he um, all of a sudden switched to that smiling and anger and had his you know, finger in my face. And he said, um, you're nothing. You're nothing to me. And you're in public. But there's nobody yeah, around. Yeah, there's no one around at this point yet that I know of. Maybe people were. If they were, I wouldn't even have known. I was like, you know what I mean? I was tunnel vision into what he was, what was happening. Sure. And I was shaking. And um, I remember my legs were shaking so bad, it's almost like I could barely stand. And um, and he's, he, I think, immediately realized he'd gone too far. Because um, after he said, you're nothing, you know, a couple of times, and, you know, and I he took me by the shoulders and he kind of shook me and he said, you're fine. You're okay. You're fine. And then he took the gym bag and he whisked away and walked away. And I was just standing there still silent and still trying to like comprehend what had happened. And he was already off and somebody was getting his attention. And I remember I sunk down to these stairs and these stairs, it's where they have the tall windows. And I remember thinking, uh, it was just, it was horrible. I mean, I, I knew, like what he did made me feel so uh, gross. Like it just felt gross. It just, I felt um, terrible and used. And, and then on top of it, I knew that was the end of my career. Like I sat there and, and, and I was processing that. So it wasn't just the actual assault and he, you know, and, and it hurt. It's not like he, he was being gentle, right? It was like, you know, our knees clashed. So my knee was hurting. 
he, you know, he entered me with his fingers pretty violently. And this I was, was not I something felt, that you were physiologically no, prepared for. No. And I, I couldn't even comprehend it was an assault, but it was an assault. And, um, but at that time I didn't even think of it in those terms. I just, I was just trying to assimilate it. It was really hard. And I knew in that moment, my career was over. Like it Why was over. Why did you over. know that? It's just, I, I can't, because of how angry he got and because he, how powerful he was, I just had this moment that I knew my life was, was forever changed. Like that was it. It was just you, sort of the sinking feeling. And, um, and as you sat on the stairs, what, what was your next move? Where did you go next physically? I, I went to the bathroom and cleaned up a bit and then I got home and that part I, it's so odd. I don't remember going back. I had to have gone back to the office to get my purse, but I don't remember it at all. Like, I just remember the next thing I remember is being home and I, um, was talking to my mom on the phone and she was screaming at me and we got in this huge argument because she wanted me to go right then to the police. Well, before I called her, I had taken a shower and I had like taken a shower and I'd like taken all my clothes, including my shoes and put them in a garbage bag and took them down to a dumpster. Like, I, I mean, I didn't even want the shoes I had on. It was so, I was just like, I was acting without thinking if that makes sense. And yeah. um, my mom, was trying to anyway and the shower thing was like i couldn't like i remember my i was scrubbing my face because i couldn't get rid of that smell that smell that it just it just uh and um my anyway my mom was screaming at me to go to the police and i was like it's the capitol police you know they're not going to help me they're not going to help you know they work for the they work for the members of congress they don't work for us what I didn't know at that time is that I could have gone to the Metro police, but probably, you know, it was the nineties, who knows how they would have treated me, who knows what would have happened. Um, but I didn't choose to do that. I should have listened to my mother and I didn't, um, she begged me. She even started sobbing on the phone after she got mad. And then, you know, I, but I just wanted her to support me. I didn't want to be told what to do. And so we got into this like really bad argument. Um, so that's how that went. And then, uh, within the next day, I had talked to my brother, my little brother. I put it in a little more delicate terms because he was my little brother. So, mm -hmm. you know, you don't talk to your little siblings the same way that you do, you know, your your parent. And then I told my friend who worked uh, in Kennedy's office, actually, and um, and she's one of my uh, witnesses. She would have testified. She's one of my cooperating witnesses, and she she knew what was going on all along like with biden and everything and this um, was part of the girl talk that you guys had when you were discussing your work yeah yeah and then so when i, I called her when this happened at the next day and and i called her and uh she was devastated um that that happened to me but we knew what it was but we didn't say the words but she didn't think i should go to the police either you know she was really worried for me because you know people died you know, like you'd hear about like staffers, like there was a, there was someone who, I, I don't know, there, there was, uh, you just didn't do that. And then later you heard about what happened to Chandra Levy. That was later after me though, but still, you know, you, you just, they had too much to lose these, these men. And that's why like when my, my friend that I had helped who was crying, you know, on the side of the road, she was giving ultimatums. And I remember, you know, my friend and I talking to her saying, look, you can't, they have so, they have everything to lose. Like you can't do that. Don't. 
put yourself yeah, in that position, I, put yourself I, in danger. I want to just take a thought, just take a beat. One of the things that is that is staying with me. One of the things that's staying with me is the fact that this is the '90s. There's no internet, and mm -hmm. it was probably the last time, and probably will be the last time in recorded history when people could really go disappear, when things could go without. There were no cell phones tracking your position everywhere. There was no DNA analysis happening for minor crimes, right? This wasn't a thing. This is no. a totally different world that even people yeah. that are my age and, and older, they remember it, but it's a distant memory in a lot of ways. I mean, right. it's it's really hard to process. You just talked about Chandra Levy. I haven't heard that name in forever. It, you know, there was always that, that weird fear that uh, people in power could do things that maybe they would there was a there was a public outrage that would happen that we don't have anymore like, mm -mm. it's assumed that people are scum today i think in so many more ways maybe the internet has yeah. done that maybe the access to pornography whatever it is there's been some cheapening in our society and our culture of some of the human dignities and so mm -hmm. it's less shocked we're less shocked but yeah. that story would have been truly shocking at that time and would have been really dangerous yeah, and, and you know, when I tried to talk about it to my supervisors, because I did complain about the other part, and I was going to get to the part of what he did, um, I was really shut down. Like, they, they just shut me down. And they didn't, it's almost like they knew something happened. I don't know how, but, um, but one yeah, thing. Do, that do you think something like this was discussed behind scenes? Like, hey, this just happened. I just had a bad interaction. You guys are going to have to step on this. Could that have been? Would that have been the kind of culture I in the office? So. You know, my friend thinks that he did it before and that they've had to clean up a lot of messes. That's what my friend thinks. I don't know. Um, I know that if we can unseal those files that are all, you know, sealed at the University of Delaware, that'll be interesting to see what complaints were made because they're all sealed there. From Why would they have the complaints from the office, like the personnel files? Why would they have those? At the, because back the then they didn't have a protocol like they do now. So all of those complaints went back to the chief of staff. And then the chief of staff chose how to secure records. And, how, and Biden's office chose to put it in the University of Delaware and seal it. And so it's out of touch. You can't FOIA it because it's a university. And this is really pre- normalized um, HR, human relations type departments. I'm also just, I'm, I'm also thinking about the, just the administrative stuff that was going on at that time. And I don't know, was there, was there a big human resources department in the, in no, the Senate? No, really. I mean, like it was pretty disorganized. They, 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 they called it the office of counseling or something. So when I took the paper to write, to make that complaint, it mm -hmm. was something called like a counseling office, like this offshoot, it was like going to, you know, this window and you filled out a form, almost like you were going to the dentist or the doctor, right? Like an intake form. And um, I filled it out and I did not talk about, I know that I didn't talk about the assault. I talked about, you know, the other stuff. And, um, you know, I wanted to talk face to face with someone about the, what happened. And I didn't get a no one followed up, no one called. But what was interesting was one of the, the assistant press secretary who um, worked with Evelyn Lieberman, mm -hmm. who was the press secretary for Joe Biden, uh, knew me. And he actually was dating one of the interns that I hired. <laughs> so again, like it's just sort of the atmosphere was just crazy. But anyway, so I'm seeing them out and um, we're out actually. And he said matter of factly to me when he found out that I had filed this paper, he said, 
Tara, we will fucking destroy you. Direct quote. Direct quote. So how do you go back to work in that kind of an environment? It was pretty hard. In fact, what they did was they made it seem like if they turned it around so much, like they made it seem like it was my fault. Like I had these meetings where I was told that I wasn't dressed appropriately and I had to wear longer dresses and um, not show my cleavage and things like that. And then I was told I was taken, the intern duties were immediately taken from me. I was put into a room with no windows and had to, and I was told my job was to get a job. And my supervisor said, you come to me, even if you have to go to the restroom, you don't leave this office. And that so, all changed from the time that you filed your complaint. Oh yeah. That's that, that was after, right after that's all of that, what happened. And then, um, I was applying for other offices, obviously, and no one would even interview me. That's the blackball feeling. Um, you, you went yeah. from someone saying, do your job, go along to get along. You have nice legs. And so therefore you should be delivering drinks at a fundraiser because that's what the big man wants. That's what the guy who's running the office says to you need to cover your cleavage and you need to wear longer skirts and sit in a, and ask for permission to go pee. Is that yeah. accurate? Yeah, that's pretty much it. What are you so feeling at that time? Classic, pretty classic, um, you know, uh, retribution and, and all of that stuff. Um, but it never saw the light of day. Right. So, so I went about my, my life. And then in 2019, I saw a young politician named Lucy Flores, getting torn to pieces by the press because she dared to say she didn't like Joe Biden kissing the top of her head without her permission and putting his hands on her. And, you know, she thought of him as like grandfatherly. She wasn't trying to imply that it was sexual, but it creeped her out. Right. And then you had seven other women that had similar stories. Well, there's even more, you know, and if you dig, there's more, there's a secret service uh, person who complained uh, that he would strip down naked in front of her and swim laps and, and just the way he did it probably we can imagine because i know i can imagine because i know how he acted he just thought of women as as objects when, when he did what he did to me it's not like there was emotion behind it i felt like i was just in the wrong place at the wrong time almost but it was like he wanted pleasure in that moment and i was in front of him and that's what he wanted that's it there was no like he wasn't trying to woo me. He wasn't trying to have an affair with me. It was just basically, he was trying to, you know. Yeah. Do you, do you remember that movie back to the future? Oh gosh, vaguely. Yeah. Yeah, I do. With, right. um, what's his name? Um, Marty McFly. Remember. He's wearing the vest. Yes. What is his name? He, I know he has Parkinson right. now. I can't, why can I not think of his name? Yeah, I can't either. Sorry. Michael J. Fox. It's Michael, Michael J. Fox's J. Fox. yeah, right? yes. mm-hmm. great movie. 80s heroism, Mm -hmm. all this kind of thing. I get this weird sense of watching from the outside. And I don't know if it's real or not, but maybe it's just the stories I've read. Maybe it's from talking to you. I see the bad guy in there, the villain, the bully. His name is Biff. Do you remember Biff? Yeah. Yeah. And, And one of the things that I recall being so upset about when I was a kid watching this was the way that he takes Marty McFly's date, who's actually his mom, right? Because it's Back to the Future. But he takes her out of the dance, and this is that classic bully mentality, and he throws Mm -hmm. her in the car, and he's going up her very, like, ruffled poodle dress or whatever it was, and he's reaching and he's putting his hands on her in the car, and that's the classic, like, get your damn hands off her, and, you know, the guy who's Mm -hmm. getting his arm beaten, you know, hits him in the face. And that's the Mm -hmm. 80s story of redemption, you know? And yet, that, that bully has been around forever. It's an archetype. 
And I don't know why I think of Joe Biden in that way in a lot of ways, but the way that he seems to put hands on women and the way that he acts about people and the way that he talks, I'll take somebody out behind the gym that has always inspired me that. And like I said, I don't know where it comes from, but um, Mahatma, he said a few months ago, he said, no one fucks with a Biden. Right. That's that attitude, crazy. though, That's not the president of the United States, it's like the mafia. Yeah, or, I mean, or it's a cartoon me, bully from a from a 50s movie. Uh, an 80s or, movie shown no, throwback. To me, he seemed very frat boy. Very okay. frat boy. Yep. Okay, like, but the privileged, violent kind, right? But that is the and, thing that we see in colleges, yeah. like where you think about it. It's like the, the, the sexual predator move. It's not like it's about lust. And it's not about excitement or or love for somebody or even an attraction to it. It's that that's the old thing we used to hear about in the 90s about how sexual assault or rape is about power. Because mm -hmm. I can attitude. Uh-huh. Right. And and you just mentioned, and I heard the way you described it, and I've I visualized it. I've taken sexual assault interviews from the you know, from the receiving end of it as a as law enforcement mm -hmm. and also as a paramedic. And those don't sound like somebody who was figuring out what his move was. That was a guy that knew how to put the moves on somebody. And mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. And that's the way you described it to me. That's what I heard. You tell me if I'm not hearing it correctly. It, it did seem looking back in retrospect in the middle of it, I couldn't really tell, but like looking back though, the way he immediately kind of put it off on me, like, Hey man, I heard you liked me, like immediately blaming me. Like I'm right. And that, I, I, you, and you know, said you and thought so this wasn't the first time it happened. So huh? I'm you sorry? said you thought that wasn't the first time it happened. And, and there's a reason yeah. why you think that way, but I, I'm just yeah. trying to suss that out. Yeah, I think I think he was very because I look back at it now and it was the way he walked away. He didn't look back. He didn't like he just literally walked away and then went on and I heard him jovially way down, you know, because you can hear the echoing down the hallway when he met up with someone. It's like it didn't happen. It didn't exist. Like he just got to, it was like an annoyance like, OK, that didn't work out. That annoyed my day. Now I'm going to go do this. Right. Yeah, there this could have no, gone one way, but the day goes another way. Yeah. Yeah, there was no like, yeah. It, it, and, and now looking back at that now, seeing him actually the way he is now, even though I know that he's different now, he seems much weaker and he seems obviously mentally, you know, like in a decline. Mm -hmm. But still there's that element of arrogance. It was the arrogance. That's what I was trying, the word I was trying to look for. Just this arrogance. Like he's above the law. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah, the word that keeps getting suggested, especially the culture you're talking about, is entitlement. It seems mm -hmm. like that's that's kind of the uh, yeah. the air of it. Yeah. So you're looking for other jobs. You're getting blackballed. You're not getting other options. Uh, what do you do? Well, I was with somebody at that point. I probably wouldn't have gone with him had I not been just assaulted. And, you know, I, I made a bad choice um, with... Uh, my ex-husband that I ended up going with, who he worked for another senator, another Democrat. Mm -hmm. And we went off together and um, I went back to California and uh, we were married and I had my daughter and I worked for uh, Jack O'Connell, who was a state senator. And when I was hired, I of course put down the reference because the agreement was they would give me a reference. Um, that was the agreement I had with Ted Kaufman when I left because, you know, I had, did had that file. I did get a little pushback a little bit. I should have pushed back much harder, but I did push a bit um, on Ted Kaufman and had a meeting with him. Mm -hmm. um, and so I go, I get hired by Jack O'Connell, right? And 
before I get hired though, the chief of staff, Gavin, um, what's his last name? Gavin, I can't remember his last name. Um, I almost said Gavin Newsom, but that's the governor. <laughs> yeah, it was Gavin, I can't remember his last name, but he was the chief of staff there for, for O'Connell and he calls me up and he goes, uh, Tara, you know, we were just about to hire you and then we got a bad reference from Biden's mm-hmm. office. And I said, really? I said, could you do me a favor, Gavin? Could you give me 30 minutes? And he said, sure. Okay. And so we hung up and I called up uh, Dennis Toner, and um, who was my one of my supervisors. And I reamed him out. I lost my temper on the phone. And I said, you fucking get on that phone and you give him a good reference. I have a baby and I will, I will blast you. I will, you know, you made an agreement to the end. <laughs> anyway, so then I get a call 20 minutes later from O'Connell's office. I mean, and um, they said, wow, we just got a call from Joe Biden's office and they were effusive and apologized and said they didn't remember exactly who we were talking about and now they do and went on and gave you a great reference. Wow. And we just decided anybody that can get them to call back that quickly deserves to be hired. So I got that job. And that is a skill set. So well done on that, I guess. (laughs) I know. And it's funny because I don't know if it was hormones or what, because I just had a baby, but I was like, you will fucking give me a good reference. So I got tough. Yeah. And there is something to be said. You you start messing around with a mama bear. (laughs) Yeah. We all know how that goes. Um, That was still in a Democrat's office. Yes. I was still in a Democrat's office. Still hadn't learned my lesson. And well, that being said, you, you spent pretty much most of your adult life, or at least certainly your your professional life, working for Democrats. And you mentioned, was it uh, Flores you said that you didn't, you heard in 2019? Yes. And, you know, after that, what I did was I, um, because of the situation with my ex-husband, I had moved to Seattle. We had a very contentious divorce. His rights were terminated with my daughter, and it was, it was pretty abusive. And I ended up getting trained by Seattle Police Department as a victim support person for domestic violence victims. And I ended up um, going to law school at Seattle U, went to law school, studied international relations and got back into that geopolitical kind of world that I liked a little bit with those classes. And then also um, was an expert witness later on for, for domestic violence uh, victims. And, um, and then even testified before the Washington state legislature to help with laws that would help um, victims of domestic violence. And that was really gratifying work. I really enjoyed it. Um, and anyway, I was raising my daughter and, uh, then she was, um, during 2019, she's an adult now, right? She's at this point, she's an adult. And I see Lucy Flores from Nevada, just get torn to pieces along with the other women. They're calling them lunatics and all these names, you know, the democratic press was just going after them. And I knew what they were doing. They were planting articles, plant, you know, and my friend called me from DC, the one who was a witness. And she said, Tara, did you see what they said? They said that no one, no former employee of Biden has ever made a complaint against him. And I said, yeah, I know I saw. And she said, are you going to do something? And I said, yeah, I probably am. So who's, I did. Who's I, telling you this again? This is your friend from the, yeah, that was living in the same dormitory no, she, she she's married and you know moved on with her life but she's but, living in virginia but she was so living she there was, at the time um she was in the dc vicinity mm-hmm. yeah but she was yes she was yeah we were all there you know so she we've stayed in touch over the years even though i went back to california and moved all over and sure you know, but we stayed in touch so um it was interesting because 
it was really difficult for me again to come forward. It had never occurred to me to go to the press. I had told people in my life over the years, but I did. And it hit the local press first because I went to like just a local newspaper and they published it. And then of course it went to um, the bigger papers and I put my toe in the water. I was just like so scared. I talked about the harassment, but I didn't get into the sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And finally, um, I got a hold of Lisa Lair from Lair from New York Times. And during the summer, and I said, you know, there's something more. And I just, I just have to say it, but I, I need, you know, I was scared to do it. And um, she said she got the message and, and actually had was sorry she didn't get it. I had called Ronan Farrow. He didn't get a hold of me. Um, he didn't know he hadn't gotten the messages. And um, so anyway, she got back to me eventually. But it, it, besides that, I went to Times Up, and I went, Times Up is this organization that's supposed to help women who have you know, coming forward about powerful abusers. And I was really wanting um, insulation to do this. I wanted a lawyer and I wanted, you know, protection a bit. Um, And so my case was accepted initially. And come to find out that Tina Chen was fundraising for Biden, and I didn't know it, and Hillary Rosen, (laughs) and who was former Obama, was was for, you know, of course, for Biden. And then... um, you know, they were all working for Joe Biden, basically, and on the payroll. So Knickerbocker, the public relations firm, was actually uh, received millions of dollars, according to FEC, from the Biden campaign during the time I was telling the story to them. You brought your story to a group that was supposed to protect women from powerful men that had also taken money from a powerful man that you were making an allegation against. Yeah. So Anita Dunn was running that. And, and so they never told me about the conflict of interest. And then they said, oh, well, this case is too political. And come to find out because Ryan Grimm exposed it, exposed Time's Up. And then later, the New York Times finally exposed them, that they were working for Biden the whole time. And they went after the Cuomo survivors and they went after me. And they literally brought, they literally just strung me along so that they could get all the information from me and who my witnesses were and anything they could extract. And I remember the last thing they said to me was, um, can you tell us any other names? Can you give us names of other women regarding Biden? Because Biden's campaign was scared, they knew, right? And um, I didn't, of course. And uh, you know, now Time's Up has been dismantled for corruption. Yeah. Do me a favor and (laughs) walk me back a couple of steps because Mm -hmm. You said something that I think will be interesting to folks. You took a job as a domestic violence victim advocate. Is that, did I say mm-hmm. it correctly? Correct. What drove you to that field and what sort of knowledge did you gain by doing that work that affected your maybe 2019 decision? Well, what, well, the, this, um, as far as, you know, because I was, I did survive some pretty bad abuse from my ex-husband. And, you know, in our family, my dad was pretty abusive. And um, the training really helped me understand the dynamic of power and control, which I didn't really understand until that training. You know, I had had, you know, different kinds of trainings, but when you train with the Seattle Police Department for domestic violence, it's a very specific kind of training. Mm -hmm. And um, 
it also allowed me to look at things more objectively instead of emotionally. So it really gave me that distance to look at things as a bigger picture. So you're not just, I don't know, reliving your own story or your own kind of bad experience, but you're actually uh, empathizing with other people, trying to help other people and, and getting out of your own self, trying to do the bigger picture, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so again, it was kind of like another public service thing, but it was important to me um, to give back because I had been helped when I was in domestic violence and my daughter and I were, were very much helped and I was able to go to law school, um, you know, and, and work and, and move on. So I wanted to give that opportunity to others as well. When I saw, you know, and then with the Me Too movement, I thought I had this structure around me to speak out. Whereas before, it never occurred to me to talk about what happened with Biden to the media. I mean, it never even occurred to me. My daughter, I would never, while she was in school, I would never have done that. Um, but also, I just felt like there was no mechanism to do that, if that makes sense. And with the Me Too movement, I felt like, okay, we're talking about this. This happened. I experienced this from a person who's running for office. And you have to recall too, during the time that I came forward, he wasn't the only candidate and he wasn't the necessarily the pick. Right. There was a whole primary season going on. Yeah. So I was trying to sound the warning alarm and I've been trying to sound it for a long time. And I said, this guy's a monster and he was my monster. And now he's like the whole world's monster and taking us close to world war three. I, yeah, you know, I, I want to get into your activism in the middle, too, because I think that all plays into your current situation and where you are. I want to dig one more question about the training that you got while you were doing that work. Did you guys discuss the physiological and psychological reactions and the way the body responds to either acute or long-term trauma? You know, we talked about the cycle of violence. That was more the key. of, And then with the cycle of violences, and I wish we had, I, I, if I'd known we were going to talk about this, I would have it. It's a Duluth model. But mm -hmm. basically it talks about the high, like when you're in a cycle of violence with someone, an intimate partner, about how, you know, you'll go through like a honeymoon period and everything will seem fine. And then it built, the tension builds and then there's an explosion of violence. Um, so it was more, it was, it was like that. Um, I, you know, again, these were trainings, but they weren't deep. You know, I didn't, I've never taken psychology or anything like that. So I can't really speak to that. I'm curious if you dealt Whatever. with victims. Yeah. In close proximity to physical violence with themselves and ever dealt with the shaking you mentioned, I've heard you mention in every interview I've seen you talk about it. And I'm yeah. curious if you know much about what was going on there. Um, I think personally, I think I was in shock. Um, but I, I, because I felt cold. And I've been in physical shock before from an injury and mm -hmm. it felt like that. It felt very similar, just like that. So I, I, I would say it's like that. What I did learn is that people, victims like of domestic violence would be disorganized with their thoughts, with their executive functioning. And I did experience that as well. So there was some similarities there for sure. But, um, and by executive functioning, I mean, you know, it's like you can do one thing, but you can't do another. I don't know. That's what I mean by that. But it's, like, it's focusing on where's the gym bag? Well, you should be trying to figure out yeah. how do I get myself out of this place? And so, you know, and so it was really beneficial for me. Um, and I would recommend it for anyone who is trying to kind of understand something that happened to them. Mm -hmm. um, because it, it put it in an objective kind of scientific way, if that makes sense, like more um, 
you don't feel so isolated or like you're the only person this has ever happened to. And I think everyone, people that have experienced things like that, get that isolated feeling. Yes. And um, yeah, so, and, and back then, you know, we just didn't talk about, I don't even know how to, because I, because you have to remember, I did the training years later. So for many years, you know, I would talk about it once in a while, but you know, in the nineties and following the nineties, the early two thousands, you didn't talk about things like that that much. You yeah. just didn't, it just wasn't talked about. <laughs> no, I agree. Uh, and, a lot of and secrets kept. <laughs> there, there were, like you said, a lot of secrets kept. There's a. Uh, are Are you familiar with the concept of a sympathetic nervous response, the the so-called fight or flight or freeze syndrome? Yes, and I would say, looking back, I probably went into freeze mode. It's the most common. Yeah. yeah. But it, yeah. but it's the the physiolog the physiological background of it, and you learn this as a paramedic, and you learn it if you're somebody who goes into, you know, into a violent place where I was trying to go in the military and and in law enforcement. There is a, a significant adrenal drum dump, and that is when your body sends uh, epinephrine into the bloodstream, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it does vasoconstriction, and it sends all the peripheral vasovasculature, um, all of your small blood vessels. They shunt all the blood to the big places they need to be, like your legs, like mm -hmm. your arms, things that you could fight to your heart. And so that's mm -hmm. the feeling of cold. Is that you lose all the you literally lose heat from your surface level skin because that's irrelevant. Uh -huh. What we need to do is we need to put blood where we can react, and so they uh -huh. go to your eyes, they go to your brain, they go to your heart, and then when you're done with that moment and your your moment has passed, and it doesn't matter if you drew your gun and shot somebody or somebody attacked you, that runoff leaves people with the shakes. It's universal across people that experience a oh, significant okay. event. Okay. I haven't heard it explained like that, but that's interesting. Okay. That explains a lot. Okay. It's it's a fundamentally like it's, it's a dinosaur brain, human reaction Reptilian to a significant brain. Yeah. threat. Okay. Mm -hmm. There you have it. Yeah. And it's interesting because like there are things I don't remember and things I do vividly. And so that really frustrated me. And I was reading other trauma, you know, professors recently, like after I came forward, actually, there was a trauma professor that explained to me about why because I was so frustrated. I was trying to remember this one portion of what happened. And no matter how hard I try, I can't. It's a blank. It's a blank. And I try and try and try. And they said, that's like a trauma response. Like there's parts probably that are blanked out. It's just blanked out. Yeah. I and also think a lot of times when you, because I've taken these notes, you know, you have somebody have something happen, whether it's a car accident or an attack, mm -hmm. and you're trying to document like what happened next. It's almost like the camera was pointed in a different direction because your attention was, how do I get out of these shoes? Because my feet oh. are hurting right now and mm -hmm. my shins hurt, but you're not able to focus on the thing that is happening directly to you because that is too much for the brain to process. So it goes to these, you know, like you said, the executive functions are, are very confused and muddled. It's very common. Um, and it, it's across all types of trauma. It doesn't matter if it's sexual or otherwise. So. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, you know, looking back, you know, Joe Biden was just very relaxed almost. That's and, the predatory piece of it. And, and that's what was kind of chilling is that that was a confrontation almost because I was pulling away and like fighting it. Right. And he's casual. <laughs> no, it's just like at the time I didn't think too much of it. Now looking back at it, I'm like, oh, wow. Like that's that's why I think he's done it. A, he did it before me and he did it after me and he doesn't think anything of it. And, and I think his, the behavior that I've heard about his son is indicative of being a child of a predator, right? Like he's been modeled to, you know, but I wanted to touch on something you said, parasympathetic um, uh, system. That is interesting. The 
sympathetic. Um, so there, there's two sides to it. There's the sympathetic is the reaction where you actually are experiencing that fight or flight. The parasympathetic is the opposite. It's when you relax and you go the other way. These are conflicting systems. Right. What I was going to say is that part of healing trauma, like one of the things that I, I like is horses. Mm -hmm. And um, what they've learned about trauma, because um, I've had other things happen to me that were actually almost worse than what happened with Biden, believe it or not. And um, what they said with about PTSD is that somatic healing is really important, um, that talk therapy doesn't really work. And so that's why, you know, equine therapy is really good and things like that. And, you know, focusing forward, I think that's, you know, a really beneficial thing for people that have had something, you know, horrific happen like what I did. Um, but it, it wasn't just what happened. It was the loss of the mentor. It was the loss of the career. It was the loss of my standing in my community. It was being, um, it was a betrayal, you know, and then that went on, right? So then I come forward and I'm thinking I'm doing a public service. It's like a whistleblowing in a way, right? Except it's about a personal situation. And, you know, the media just <laughs> goes after me, you know, like jackals. Yeah, talk about that. Obviously, you didn't know you were going up against a multi-million dollar PR firm that was already in the know. But uh, how, mm -hmm. how is it received for people who can't remember three years back? You know, I remember hearing the allegation. I didn't pay attention to a whole lot of it. I didn't have interactions with you at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. I just went like, okay, that's a story. And, you know, we, we listened to the story and then you try to figure out if it's credible or not. The media did yeah. their own thing. They did something different. Oh, they attacked me. Beth Reinhardt, Pulitzer Prize winner, right? Reporter. She was my first interview with the Washington Post. And she said, the first thing she said out of her mouth, and I wrote about this in my book, um, she goes, Tara, do you, uh, don't you realize that this is going to hurt Joe Biden's campaign? You know, because like, she's trying to speak to me like I'm some Democrat, like my allegation. Right. And then she goes into talking about the allegation, you know, when she's interviewing me, trying to get me to give her the details. And she's like, would stop and interrupt me and goes, so, um, she, it was really gross. She, she said, so did he touch your clitoris? Did you get pleasure from that? I mean, these are the kinds of questions a Pulitzer prize winner reporter asked me she 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 had me down in tears like i was literally by the end of the interview i was in tears and i was sick why do you think she, she did that awful. she just attacked me like you know in other words she was implying like even if he did it you probably liked it you know it was just awful it was it was probably one of the most ugly things i've ever been through and, and how did that, um, how did that compare to the others that talked to you well, they were equally horrible, but not as graphic. <laughs> um, but, you know, Lisa Lair was more earn your trust, earn the trust, earn the trust, and then betray. That was her thing, you know, um, and then do the hit piece. And they made it all about the fact that I was a Russian asset. Because that, that's when the Russian agent, everybody who wasn't agreeing with Democrats was a Russian agent. That's when that was rolling out against Donald Trump, against any Republican. It's, you know, it just was, it was ridiculous. And so, of course, um, Lisa Lair even said when they approached the Biden campaign, the only thing he did was the campaign faxed back. They wouldn't answer about the assault. They would fax back something saying that I was... Um, something about one of my posts that I made about uh, Russia that was positive, implying I was a Russian agent. So it was just stupid. So it was a way to just distract the whole conversation. 
What was the allegation that was made that tied you to Russia? Um, because I publicly had spoken out um, a about a couple of specific things. I said that um, Biden, um, if he were elected, would take us to war with Russia. And I said that in 2019. And he did. <laughs> but anyway, um, but at that time, nobody was going to hear that. Right. That was a conspiracy theory, you know, or whatever. And I said positive things about Vladimir Putin because I said, I think he's a good leader. He simply takes care of his people. That's all it took, basically. Um, I had said I was writing a novel about Russia and America, and I was writing about um, something from the Cold War up through to the current time and I was trying to, because the Russophobia was kind of coming up and I was writing it from a geopolitical kind of sense, but it was a novel. Mm -hmm. So I was in the middle of writing that um, and they pulled a bunch of the pieces of the novel that were you know, posted in a writing group that I was in and um, made it seem like I was somehow tied to the Russian government. And, so and were you? No, yet. Yet, she says. <laughs> when you were no. growing up, when you were growing up, tell me about your impression of Russia from your the childhood you know, and onward. Interesting. Um, my cousin actually, I'm uh, have a cousin that's um, uh, Russian, so mm -hmm. by marriage, and um, so it was always very positive. I, I didn't, you know, we were taught in school. Um, I, I was, oh, I, I'm too um, young, excuse me, to be under the desk, like I know people older than me had to like practice, you know, nuclear war and stuff. <clears throat> that was before my time. But like, um, for me, it was just sort of the rhetoric. We were told basically that America won World War II and it's like, you know, Leningrad didn't even exist. Like the, the whole stand against, you know, and, and all the losses that the Soviet Union suffered. Touch on um, that so just for a second. Cause I, I always like to give people a little bit of history, and I think people don't have a good concept of the, the number of losses the Soviets had during World War II. 27 million, yeah. Including civilians, right? Yeah. I think to, close to 20, like 19 or 20 million in uniform, something like that. Right. It was like a third of the country was like dust, like it was burned. Yeah. And do you know how many in uh, the Allied side lost their lives? Um, no. Mm -mm. It's like 500,000 United States, 500,000 Great Britain. Yeah. So just the, the losses were 20x plus yeah. for the Russians uh, and the Soviets at that time. People don't well, have that I mean, concept. John, once... John Kennedy gave that eloquent quote where he said, um, we owe the Soviet Union a debt we can never repay. You know, and that's something. Yeah. So, so yeah, I was kind of grew up with the Cold War mentality, although my mother, you know, remember my great grandmother was a communist, um, you know, and followed like Jack Reed. She was into women's right to vote. They were into different thinking, intellectual thinking. So I was exposed to Karl Marx. Um, when I was a little girl, I brought a book of Karl Marx to school. And we had this stump out in Wisconsin. It was like this little red schoolhouse. And um, we would take turns getting on the stump, doing different things, talking, singing, reading, you know, playing, whatever. We were all, you know, little, whatever. And so I had my Karl Marx book for my big brothers. And um, and I was explaining it. God knows how I explained it at eight years old, because that was probably would have been. I wish I had a recording of it, because God knows what I said. But it was enough to where um, the kids went home 
and talked about it and about how maybe there wasn't a God and that maybe Karl Marx and all this other stuff, you know, and I come from a Catholic background. A lot of the kids there in Wisconsin are Lutheran. And, um, yeah, it was, it was funny because, um, I can only imagine how this went over. <laughs> my parents got a call and they said, um, they had to go in and my mom had to go in and, and they said, um, you know, Tara is showing some leadership qualities and we like that, but we need to figure out a different thing for her because, and she can't bring her Karl Marx book to the school. Because she might be organizing a revolt, a Marxist revolt, and, and they might be moving around the means of production for education. <laughs> well, check this out. So this is what they did. They made me a bus patrol and they, I got to wear the orange sash with the, with the, with, you know, the badge. Mm-hmm turned into a total fascist. I loved it. I was like going after, you know, <laughs> the older boys that would pick on they people. They gave you a little bit of authority. It went straight to your head and you became oh, yeah. a fascist. I went from Marxism to fascism just like that. Like, a, well, you know, like a typical like, Democrat, right? Like, <laughs> like it can happen on, to anybody given the right amount of power and the wrong kind of ideas. Huh? I know. So I got to sit at the front of the bus with my orange sass. So I said, that's all I had to do is give me my uniform. It's so good. Oh, that's very, very funny. All right, so from Marxism to fascism, that'll be your next book. <laughs> uh, you have written one book about your story, and mm -hmm. I think it plays into why you are where you are, if I understand correctly. Obviously, you got torn apart in the mainstream press here. You were not mm -hmm. received the way you expected. I think that uh, is pretty evident. And you went from being someone who, in theory, had some alliances, probably historically, to the Democrat Party, who received you? Did anyone receive you well? Did anyone uh, take your story and say, we believe you? Behind the scenes, right? Mm. But they won't say it publicly. So that was really frustrating. Like, You want to um, name any names? Oh, yeah. Like Chris Wallace, right? Okay. Um, said his Formerly wife of Fox, now at what? Uh, now he's at what? Yeah, CNN yeah. Plus? Said his until... wife was groped by him when, um, by, when Joe Biden was a vice president. And I don't mind saying it because, you know, they should be talking about this. He's a media person. He should be telling the truth. And it's bullshit that I have to stand out here on my own. And, you know, but yeah, he, he had that problem. Now you had um, that Senator Brown just came forward about his wife getting roped and that he was going to kick the shit out of Biden is what he told him, right? So Wait, I, I didn't hear have, that one. Tell, tell that story if you would. I'll... Well, I, I don't really know it personally. I just know it's been in the media just last few days. But and of course, only in the conservative media. They're not. That's what I'm getting at. Sure. Yeah. But Brown um, was a Democrat, a friend of Joe Biden's and basically said those words said, I will kick the shit out of you if you do that again. But he was groped his wife. He had his hand all over her ass, basically, at a, at a function where there's cameras or whatever. And he, he groped her and he didn't and, you know, he didn't like it. He defended his wife. Yeah. So, well, luckily he didn't. It was this. I wonder how recently that was. Was that something that I just know, happened? He did mention that there was mental decline. So it must have been recently. Interesting. Um, so, yeah. And so, yeah, look, look up that article with Brown, though. That's he's a former um, representative. Um, and, you know, you know, you have a lot of people that are coming forward as far as like, you know, behind the scenes, you know, Democrats coming to me. No, not a word. In fact, I wrote before I went public, I wrote to Bernie Sanders. I wrote to Elizabeth Warren. Okay. I wrote to AOC. I wrote to Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein because they were in my districts, you know, in California at that you know, time. Um, and silence. No, uh, uh, Christy Blasey Ford type, uh, Christine Blasey Ford reaction. No, no response at all, mm -hmm. except Elizabeth Warren sent me back a fundraising letter so they got donate. it. 
I mean, yeah, she- <laughs> to donate. Um, but it was a form letter. But yeah, no. And you know, it's not like I was just someone random. I mean, I was a staffer and they could see that I was a staffer. So yeah, they just chose to ignore it. Let's AOC talk about, too. yeah, let's talk about a, uh, a word that has been thrown around quite a bit. I'm trying to see if I have the, uh, there it is. There's the definition mm-hmm. of it. This is coming from Wikipedia. The word defection. Defection is when a person leaves their home country in a way that the home country claims to be illegal to the first country they can be seen as a traitor. It is a political label used by authoritarian countries. This is from left-leaning Wikipedia. I just pulled that up uh, before we started talking. People have mm-hmm. said that you have defected. You are now in Moscow. I am now in Moscow, Russia. Yes. Um, defected, you know, also usually is used in terms of like military or, you know, someone who is working, you know, in that capacity. Yep. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I'm not that. So I, yeah, there, there, there it is defecting. Yeah. It's, right. When, it's when I was younger, defectors were people who were flying like a MiG-28 and they uh, decided to leave Cuba and land in Florida airspace, put it down on the tarmac and claim yeah. asylum, real asylum, and say, right. I am defecting to the United States. I'm bringing whatever I have and you can have my plane. Right. Right. That, that's the recollection I have of that word. I've never heard yes, it used for someone. Like, it's more of like if you're in a military conflict. Russia's not supposed to be our enemy right now, officially. Right. Have we declared war officially? No, not that I've seen, although we seem to be doing a multi-billion dollar proxy. Yeah, we're doing a multi-billion dollar proxy. But my point is, is that, you know, it's 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 an odd term. But yeah, so I, um, you know, I'm really uh, lucky that I was able to not be taken into custody because I think the next thing, the next phase, because of um, how loud I continue to be about Joe Biden and kept pressing the issue. And then I was about to testify before Congress, you know? Yeah, let's set, the, let, let's set the stage for this. There are two things that I think that were going on. One, you were speaking out about Joe Biden, and I've heard that. And and many people will not know that you had a pretty strong anti-war position that you were speaking out about. Is that correct? Very much. Mm-hmm. Talk about your anti-war activism and whether you think that was playing into any of the, you know, we always talk about potentiation, like one thing makes another thing worse, if you think that that was involved. Well, I, I really chose because my platform was small, right? But I had a little one and I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to use this for something. And, um, you know, and I don't think of myself as a victim, right? I, I'm kinda, I don't like that. You know, I, I chose to look at this in a different way. This happened a long time ago. It was wrong. It's never been investigated. It should have been. And it cost me my career. That was wrong. And so I wanted to make it so that no one else had to suffer that. That's how I wanted to approach it. I didn't mm-hmm. want to like get into the whole victim space and get into all of that. I simply wanted to tell the truth and get some real, something close to justice. And when it became obvious that wasn't gonna happen, I decided, okay, I have this little platform, what can I do with it? Well, the bigger issue became very quickly early on in the administration for Biden was was the proxy war. And so I decided, you know, and all the Russophobia stuff, and I decided, you know what, I'm gonna push back on this. I'm gonna use my voice to push back on this and align myself with other people who are pushing back on this, other anti-imperialist voices, you know, like the gray zone, like antiwar.com. And, um, and like, frankly, some of the um, libertarian and conservative voices in Tucker Carlson, 
You know, I was on Tucker Carlson's show three times. Uh, one of those times, of course, I was talking about, you know, I was talking about, you know, what happened. But then the other two, I was talking about something totally different. And one of them I talked about, I got to speak at the Rage Against the War Machine, and we had libertarians, Republicans, um, and some lefties. You had people from all over the political spectrum all saying the same thing, quit sending our tax money over to this country um, and having a proxy war when we need infrastructure at home, when we need homes for 600,000 people, when we need you know, inflation to go down. Now, I know my, me talking about inflation is going to make the CIA very angry because they said that in USA Today. They, they were very, a former CIA agent saw me complaining, he said, about the U.S. That made him viscerally angry. Can you pull up the, uh, the, the picture from the, the USA Today, Ryan? I know we sent that article over. Yeah. Makes the, makes the CIA mad for you to talk about the money. There it is. Yeah. A, a Biden accuser, Tara Reid Bolts. Bolts, that's a good one. Bolts. You, yeah, that's what happened. Uh, and yeah. so she fears for her safety. So you're speaking out about the war effort. That's a pretty traditional yeah. lefty cause, I would say. The, uh, yeah. Let's give peace a chance. That was always the chant in the 60s and the 70s, right? Um, you said you had a brother who was a conscientious objector. That sounds like that was kind of mom's ethos. That was definitely in your house. I'm putting words yes. into your mouth, but stop me anytime. And then now you still have that. My dad. my dad was not. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. If your dad was more conservative and was more uh, aligned with the establishment, uh, that was always kind of a right wing position. It's like, yeah, bombs cost money and money equals jobs. And those are all good things. So war is a good business. And right. Yep. I mean, the, people always accuse the Republicans of being war hawks. Yeah. So now I was aligning myself with a lot of Republicans. And if you notice, you know, Donald Trump, you know, I, I didn't vote for him, but he didn't get us close to war. Yeah. What so, do you think about that? Like, you weren't a Donald Trump voter. Have no, I wasn't. What do you, what do you think yeah. about the guy looking from the outside, looking from Moscow? What do you think about Donald Trump in the last, let's say, seven years that you've seen when you didn't vote for him? Oh, I, I think what I saw was that he actually um, he obviously did a better job than Joe Biden is doing. OK, economically, just from an objective point of view, he didn't get us. He got us out of wars, not into wars. And he, um, you know, was fighting the whole time against a bureaucracy that wanted him out and was persecuting him and accusing him of ties to Russia, which he didn't have. And that was proven that that didn't exist. And it was all, you know, something that was manufactured by Democrats, you know, to maintain power and to get him out. And, um, you know, it also kind of solidified for me in my mind how much power people like Anthony Blinken and Victoria Newland and, you know, John Kirby and people like that have the bureaucrats behind the scenes are the ones running the show with the military industrial complex. And um, now they're going after now Donald Trump is the political opposition and they're taking him out. OK, so let's look at this. They're taking out the political um, opposition. It's been shown that they've been weaponizing the DOJ and the FBI in social media and other things to go after U.S. citizens that aren't for this proxy war or that maybe want to vote for Donald Trump. And you have also, you have agencies going after people with religious beliefs. Um, does that sound like a democracy? Well, I know we have a, we have a Republic and it doesn't sound very much like a democratic Republic in any way. No, it doesn't sound like a democratic Republic. So and I tweeted something, no. I shared something the other day. I said, the country I grew up in would have invaded the country that I live in. What do you think about that idea? I think that's a, a really interesting quote because I think you're right. And, you know, and we're coming to the point where I talk about why I left and 
you know, it wasn't, I, I was actually coming um, to Moscow, Russia because of this book and I have an interpreter and I was coming in person to oversee it. And I packed for one week. And let me tell you, I mean, people have like said, oh, you planned or whatever. No, I didn't. In fact, I didn't say, there's a lot of regrets I have. I didn't say, if I had known what was gonna happen, I would have said goodbye differently. I would have spent my last few days differently. I would have packed differently, but I didn't. I packed for a week and thought I was coming right back. And, you know, and it became clear. It was becoming clear. I was getting a lot of death threats during that time. I was getting nervous. I reached out to you, Kyle, as a matter of fact, remember? Um, yeah, you, I, was, I remember you calling me and asking me a question that I couldn't answer and I would have no way to know. And I thought, oh my God, this poor woman. Like, I, I remember thinking, like, I have no, no way to help you. You also called me right in the middle of some really chaotic times on our end. And I thought, it, it's everywhere. And, you know, you can only fight so many battles at once. But as I recall, you asked me, um, is there an open FBI case on me at the time? Is that, sound, is that about right? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to know. And um, I did get an answer to that question elsewhere, but... Um, what it turned out to be is that, um, you know, as far as like, I don't know all the details of what is going on. I know there's a sealed indictment. I know that um, I had gotten a message that there was red notices, Interpol red notices, which are, um, it's an international red notice where they'll arrest you at that airport. So I had, you know, you can't go to Moscow directly. You have to go through Istanbul, Turkey or Dubai. And so I had gone through Istanbul, Turkey into Moscow. Mm -hmm. And so we've now like put out, inf you know, uh, requests to see if if I had the red notice, like what countries those Interpol notices are and things like that. These are international arrest warrants. Right. Um, and what I've been told um, or what's assumed is that there was something about, um, I, I want to get this right, FARA, which yep. is the Foreign Registration Act and um that's like the back door into the espionage act and conspiracy and possibly violation of sanctions so it was like a little bit of a laundry list of things coming my way and it would have allowed them while they were sorting it out to the the us can hold you for 18 months without charges and they can hold you in foreign prisons that long like for instance if i was in istanbul turkey and they had a red notice they could just hold me for months there in a turkish prison I don't, I don't know around on it. So if somebody thinks well, I have a human rights attorney, so that's Ron right. And, that, and that's the other thing. I, I know you have people that are working on your behalf that are concerned about this kind of thing. Folks, if you have some different experience and it's professional and it's uh, going to be yeah. con constructive, put it in the comments below, by all means, we'll, we'll always read those kind of things, uh, especially if it takes off the, uh, the heat off someone. Okay. So you packed for a one week trip to go and do a translation of a book. Can we throw the book on the, uh, on the screen for oh. a second here? Um, tell us what, what drove you to write the book. The left out when the truth doesn't fit in, um, was actually published in 2020 and it was, um, about what happened and the media out, you know, how they really big, basically crushed me, um, and social media, you know, with bots and democratic bots and things like that went after my family. I mean, they went after my family, my friends, everything. And so I write about that in the book, a little bit about my childhood about the event itself. And I even write about Russia and being accused of being a Russian agent in that book. And so um, I was adding a chapter to the book um, through this company here, the international publishing company in Moscow, and they were translating it into Russian. 
And so while I was overseeing that, then, you know, it became clear that I might not be able to, if I went home, um, I could have been facing, you know, years in jail. And in the middle of all of this, I had been talking to Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene about testifying before Congress. Yep. I'd had a long interview with them. Did they reach they, out to you or did you reach them? They reached out to me and they were going to, and you can see on Twitter, if you look through the history, you can see some of the comments that Matt Gates gave. He believed me and um, supported me and he still, you know, he still does. And he, but I'm in Moscow, Russia. So it's like, you know, whatever, but. You're kind of untouchable in some ways now. Yes. Um, but he basically, I reached out to his legal counsel and to him. And when I was in Moscow, because they wanted me to come to DC and, um, I didn't uh, go, obviously I stayed in Russia, but I called him and he was one of the reasons why I stayed, not the whole reason. He didn't give me advice. He just simply gave me information. Um, and I'm glad he gave me honest information. He gave me an honest take on it. He just said, Tara, you know, um, I'm worried for your physical safety. I know how these people operate, you know, and, and he was not just talking about the legal stuff. I had gotten a lot of threats um, on my life. And remember, Matt Gates is close to, um, you know, the intelligence community. So I think he had, you know, he knows like how dangerous it is for whistleblowers and witnesses. And he was concerned for my safety and told me that. And he, you know, he basically said, as far as the legal stuff goes, he, he couldn't, you know, there was no way they could protect me from that. I like, you know, yeah, there's no way. He, yeah. DOJ does what it does. Is this an appropriate time to play the, uh, the Kirby video that we have? Yeah, yeah, and then okay, so set set up the video and uh, and where you were when you received it, if you would, and, and I'll have Ryan play it when you say so. So I gave a press conference in Russia, and I explained why I was asking for asylum in Russia because I wanted people to know that I was being intimidated and being kept from from testifying against Biden. And then um, apparently John Kirby decided that he needed to give a press conference and talk about it. So here it is. Um, Tara Reid, who was an aide to then-Senator Biden back in the 90s and then uh, in 2020 accused him of sexual assault, she announced yesterday she's seeking citizenship in Russia and she feels safer there. Does the White House have any reaction to that announcement given the accusations that she's made against President Trump? We'd be loathe to comment on the, uh, uh, on the musings of a potential Russian citizen. That's really up for her to, to speak to. Does the White House uh, believe that her allegations may have been motivated by her uh, allegiance to affinity for Russia? Difficult to say. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can't get inside uh, her her head and, and, and speak for her motivations and intentions. That's really for her to speak to. The one thing I will say is that the allegations that uh, her life was at risk uh, by the United States government, absolutely false, baseless. There's nothing to that. Hmm. What do you think Absolutely when you see that? False. Yeah. Well, he said it, so it must be true, right? Yeah. I kind of took it like opposite world. Like when he says you're safe, <laughs> you're not safe. Because <laughs> he says a lot of things, right? He's, you know, the head of the NSA. So where, uh, where were you when you saw that video first? I was in Russia. So I watched it and I was having, you know, those ambivalent feelings like, well, maybe I can go back. And then I saw that and I was like, oh, okay, no. And he gave two, by the way, there were, that was one of them. 
he gave another set of comments too. Um, so he was pretty, um, anyway, my lawyer said, I, I think I made the NSA mad. So. Oh, well done. <laughs> so apparently they had different plans and I didn't follow the. Yeah. You I weren't following follow. what they expected. Well, here's no. the thing that we found. And, and I think that you and I share this is that they have an ex there's an expectation of what you will do. And there's a playbook that people do because that's how the success has been achieved in stifling stories from going public, whatever those stories may be. And when you go outside of the, the, the boundaries, when you color outside of the lines, mm -hmm. it upsets them. And also it makes them do things that they don't know what to do with you. And it gives you at yeah. least a little bit of wiggle room. Um, and I'm, I'm very appreciative that you're sharing your story here with us because I think that people should hear it. I hope there's some more journalists that will look into it and, and follow up on some of the allegations on there uh, for what it's worth. You talked to you. I know you sat down with Tucker three times. He brought up your story. Obviously you have some private moments when you guys, cause you were in person doing the interviews, right? Mm -hmm. How did yeah. he receive you? Um, he was very warm. Like at first, you know, he was like, didn't know what to make of me. And then after talking to me afterwards, he became very warm. He gave me his phone number. He um, said he believed me and he wanted to talk to me more. And he, you know, cause we had like a three and a half hour conversation an hour ended up hour and a half or whatever ended up in the interview. But he, he and I saw eye to eye and a lot of things anti he's very anti-imperialist. He's a libertarian. And I think, um, there's parts of me that are very libertarian too. Um, so we kind of bonded on those political belief systems. Um, I didn't anticipate at the time, you know, that he would be fired and, you know, now he, of course he doesn't, he can have his own platform. He'll do his own thing. He'll be fine, but still he was doing such great work. I I'm really shocked. Um, although I shouldn't be, but I still am that he was, you know, removed. Um, but he was also open to hearing about Russia, you know, and, and, you know, I have to say, Kyle, um, I think that what people don't understand in America is that there's a lot of propaganda to try to keep us from knowing the truth about Russia. And I think it's not just political about, you know, tension. I think what it is, is they don't want us to know how good the life is here. Um, their economy is booming despite the sanctions. And it's very clean. It's very efficient city in Moscow. I've been to other cities. I've been to the Caucasus. I've been to St. Petersburg. I've been to um, Sochi. And I've seen you know, the countryside. I've taken a train and seen other small towns. Some of them don't have as much as others. But here you see a scene of um, this is Red Square near the Kremlin. Mm -hmm. And um, you see the, the and this is your video. This is video you shot just walking around. Yeah, just walking around. People are happy and content there. You have a very thriving middle class, a very, and here um, is from a boat. I took a little, they have boat tours almost every day you can take. And it's a really nice kind of way to see the city. Hmm. Where are the homeless people? You don't see homeless people. And in fact, 80 to 90% of uh, Moscovites um, own their own apartments and even a dasha. So you're talking young people out of college. It's very easy to own homes. Um, what, what is that percentage? Equally, um, 80 to 90% that own it outright. Not a bank owns it. Like I thought that meant a mortgage, but it doesn't. Um, I was wrong. It's it outright. Um, this is a subway system that you're seeing here. If you look at it, look how beautiful it is. They look like museums. Each stops unique and different. Um, and, and they're always very clean, very efficient. They run every two or three minutes. You can go Where's anywhere the in the city. The, who's playing the music and uh, pooping on the side of the platform? 
Well, you know what? There are sometimes musicians, like, but you'll hear classical music as opposed to other things. And um, yeah, you don't see any kind of, of that. Like there's nothing like that. And you don't even see a lot of police. That's what's really interesting. It's not like you constantly see police because you don't. It's it's just a really well-run city. They're there. I'm sure security's there. Everything's monitored. But um, again, they, there's a social net, I think, for people that have struggles. So they have homes and they have basic food needs taken care of and transportation is cheap. So like workers um, that have to work across the city, like let's say 30 minute commute or whatever, it's 500 rubles, which is about 50 cents. And, and that train, like if you miss one, there's one two minutes later. And then there's another one two minutes later. It's 550 cents. What was I saying? It's a hundred rubles is a dollar. Is that not what I saw recently? No, no, I don't, I don't know, but I think I, it's about 50 cents is how much the subway is. So okay. if I got the, the d- denominations wrong, I probably 50 did. 50 rubles maybe or something. Terrible at it. Um, and uh, yeah, I always tip too much and people are always stopping. Don't tip that much. They, <laughs> yeah, I got that when I, I was in Poland many years ago. Hmm? Yeah, I did that in Poland uh, when the money was like water there. We had four or five X, like your dollar went so much further at that point. And I remember people yeah. telling me, no, you know, like I think $13 paid for, you know, meal for two people. And then uh, on top of that, it also was like a 50% tip. And people looked at you like you were a rich person acting. And I was like, I'm just trying to be not like $13 is not that much money to me, <laughs> even though I had no money at the time. It was just well, so you know what? the wages, the wages are a little lower in Russia, but the cost of living is so much lower for the people. So they have their transportation pretty well taken care of. Education is paid for. Medical is very cheap. I have to have like something done with the uh, um, with a MRI thing. An MRI, which is thousands of dollars in the U.S., is two hundred dollars in in Moscow to pay out of pocket. And most places have insurance. So it's free. And um you know, there's a big state system for, for medical too. Uh, you know, it's not, I'm not saying, I'm not here to say everything's perfect. I'm just here to say, I think we've been kept from knowing how good it is because they're capitalistic. They And, and I see people in their comments, communists, blah, blah, blah. They're not communists at all. This is a very thriving economy of capitalism, but it's not crony capitalism. And that's the difference. And in the US, we're suffering right now under the weight of crony capitalism. So it's very top heavy and nothing in between. And then poverty, you know, it's just poverty. Whereas in Russia, you know, it's growing, it's new. Capitalism is relatively new. And um, you're seeing a thriving middle class. This is Gorky Park. Gorky Park is one of the big major parks, kind of like Central Park in New York. It's quite beautiful. This yeah, is it, looks just like the, one, it looks like the Queen's Gardens in uh, in London. It's, <laughs> it's it's one of the key, few sections, and, and there's places where they just let it go wild, and there's wildflowers. Mm-hmm. There's there's skate park. There's a concert area. There's a huge pond where you can take little boats, and there's swans. I mean, it, it's a huge park. Like I only got like one little piece of it. Um, there's parks all over the place. They they put a lot of emphasis on greenery in Moscow. And one of the things that I found really striking here is, you know, when you're in New York, there's like this kinetic energy. It's very intense and you're always kind of on guard. And it's, it's hectic. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. Yeah. Moscow's as big as New York, but you don't, it's more relaxed. You have people moving quickly, right? Because people can rent scooters and bikes everywhere. They're everywhere. You just rent them with your app and um, everyone's moving really fast. But yet there's a calmness. And like when you're in the parks, 
you see a lot of families, very traditional families. There's an earnestness. If someone hears me speak English, they run up and they want to talk to me. And they're really, there's no animosity. I've never not experienced it one time while I've been here. And I've been here now four months. So since May 20th, I've been God, here. That's gone fast too, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. So, and there's been no, like, they, they don't feel animosity towards Americans. So all of this hatred that in vitriol coming from Washington, D.C. is really sad. Let me, let me throw a, a, a mirror image at you. 1980s, we're thinking about Russia in the United States, and uh, we think that it's gray and it's dingy and it's um, economically depressed and they're losing the Cold War and they've lost freedoms and they have totalitarianism over them. and All the things that we heard, I don't know if they're true or not because I wasn't there, but probably wasn't great. Um, and then we always heard that there was uh, a, a concentrated effort. You remember? Did we just lose our feed? No, I can't. <laughs> there it is. You, so do you, do you remember? Like they were always saying that the Russians, we had the Radio Free Europe movements. We were always trying to broadcast in behind the Iron Curtain. We were trying to let them know that things were better and that you could overthrow the you know communist overlords and and live freedom. That was the American push. Mm-hmm. And they were, and the, and the, Theoretically, the, the government there of the USSR was trying to stop that. And now I feel like maybe we've switched roles based on what you're saying. I don't know if it's 100% true, but I trust you as a human being. I'm sure your experience is being honest. Have we just swapped places? I'm wondering. Um, I'm thinking the same thing because like, what this has been feeling like to me being here, because I didn't really expect it to be this nice. Right. Like I kind of even though I was pushing back on Russophobia, I still was indoctrinated to think of Russia a certain way. And I had to be here to really experience it to see like, wow, this is completely different than what I thought. And they have like super modern and, you know, really cool things going on and innovation that we don't have right now in the U.S. And it's like you said, we switched roles. But it's it's nostalgic for me of what the 80s were like in America. Like there was an innocence, there was something um, different, right? Right now, I feel like the United States is like what the Soviet Union was right before it collapsed. I really am concerned that, and I don't want that to happen uh, to the country that I was born in, but I feel like under Biden, and if it continues and it goes to like Gavin Newsom and they continue with the same path, I think the government is going to collapse. I think the it is collapsing because of the culture and and everything. It's it's you know become eroded. One thing that, that about Putin that's interesting is he chose to ban um, Monsanto and to ban hormones and foods. He was watching the culture and he and you know like they say he's anti that he's uh, anti LGBT, which isn't true. I thought he, he was anti shirt. Like, he just likes to ride bears. That's what I was. Under the impression right. of. But but like what with the Russian culture is Orthodox Christian. Mm-hmm. And so LGBT, they're very concerned about children. And they they are very concerned about children. Like you'll go into a bookstore and there are books that are not allowed for children under 18 and they're wrapped a certain way. I mean, they protect their children. They want them to have their innocence. Like the 80s. Was, yeah, and I think that that's okay. Like the, what's wrong with that? Um, what's wrong with protecting children? Um, they don't need to know everything, right? Like right away. They need to be able to grow and then assimilate things in a natural way. But um, but anyway, back to Monsanto. They don't allow um, 
you know, a lot of the, the pesticides here and, and in Europe too. There are sure. certain countries in Europe that also ban them. But he just he just saw all the illness and all the carcinogens in the food and he decided to uh, to do all that. So that got implemented a few years ago. And um, they have so like you don't have to look for organic food. It's everywhere you go. I saw the pictures that you sent me. Um, there's not a lot of people that look like American classic obesity, unhealthy looking kind of mom and dads struggling with overweight kids and things like that. I didn't see that. I mean, Ryan can roll some of the footage while you're talking, but you mentioned something about the health of the middle class there. It was kind of impressive to me. We're just looking at people in the city. So maybe that's what people in cities look like, but um, no, no, no. It's, it's like that. I mean, there are people of all different kinds of sizes, right. And different um, backgrounds. I mean, uh, Russia is very diverse actually um, with different cultures and different religions and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But um, you notice a lot of fit people because they don't have poison in their food. Their food's not poisoned and you have access to activities. You walk a lot. Um, you have access to gyms. Um, things are cheaper. And there's not the air of desperation. Like, look at, look at, if you looked at those footages, you saw the calmness, people going about their business. That was during a time. Yeah, it kind of freaks me out, to be honest. Like, I don't see people, like, they look like they're on a, a like a movie set, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, I mean, it's been a real, um, they talk about culture shock. The culture shock has been realizing how bad things are in the US. And that's been hard. And I know that, again, it makes the CIA officers mad. Sorry, boys. Um, but it's the truth. They're hiding it from us. They've taken our country into disarray and ruin. And I've just, I'm in a country where they're building and they believe in innovation. I, uh, I showed a clip from trading spaces. Do you remember that movie with Eddie Murphy? It's the eighties movie about, uh, wall oh, street. Vaguely. I never saw it though. Oh, you're not uh, missing a whole lot. I mean, it's just a cutesy movie, but, okay. uh, you know, classic Eddie Murphy stuff and, and okay. I've been watching 80s movies. I've been watching early 90s movies with my kids. It's like walking back in time. It's like looking at a thing that was calmer. I uh, I just watched Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. This is probably overshare, but I watched, my wife found it for five bucks. You remember Rick Moranis yeah. is in it. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the female actress, but she's in a lot of movies and she's great. Yeah. And the kids are cute. They're sweet, right? Yeah. And the story was the mom and the dad had a fight and she's out and staying at her sister's and she calls on the phone and she wishes him good luck, honey. And it's not the story of divorce, although that was very common in the 80s and the 90s. We experienced a lot of that. It was yeah. uh, she said, we need to put this family back together. And so that was the, the message that came out of out mm -hmm. of Hollywood. And in a lot of ways, if people want to look back in time, they can see how much more hopeful it was. Part of it was probably the cocaine in the 80s, but there was a hope that existed like you just talked about. And I think so many people that are looking for that and, and are upset about the way America looks right now, yeah. I feel like a lot of us are looking for, it's a nostalgia feeling for, for my childhood, for your childhood, which is to say that end of Cold War era where there was a lot of possibilities mm -hmm. and there's a big sadness when it's gone because it feels like we lost something really important and our kids are not going to get it. Your daughter just graduated from grad school. I know you yeah. called me yesterday to tell me about that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. she's not going to inherit that same world. She's not walking into the same world that you did. No. She's walking into a world of a lot of broken people that need a lot of help. And, um, you know, I have to say, you know, I it's been hard to, to suddenly go to a different country and then ask for safety because I, I just refuse to go home and be put in a cage or to have 
you know, be threatened anymore. So I decided to stay here in Russia. I did apply for asylum. I'm waiting for my final paperwork and citizenship. My dream was to have both, like to, to go back and forth, right? But I don't know if that'll be possible. I don't know when I'll be able to go back to the United States. So one of the difficult conversations I had to have with my daughter was, you know, I don't know when I'll see her again. And that was a conversation of many tears over the course of many weeks here. But she also is of the mind that I'm safer here and it's better um, for me to be here. I wasn't going to be, and, and, and just, you know, I wasn't allowed to work. I wasn't allowed to function. I was, they were just on me about little things. Now it's taxes, you know, and before it was this or that. And it's just everything, you know, it, it you know, they just come at you with everything. And, um, you know, when, when the DOJ gets weaponized, like it did. And I think the most important thing for people to do right now is to understand how weaponized our government is against its own citizens. Now, this is, I could, I am everyone, right? Like I could be anyone. They're weaponized against you, Kyle, because you spoke up. They're weaponized against the former president, Donald Trump. Monday, he's going to be maybe put in jail with 19 other people who, it's just, it's mind boggling to me. You, uh, I, I haven't disclosed this on our show before, but we're talking and we're sharing stories. And so I'll share the story. I got a bill for about $10,000 for insurance that I didn't know that I had because the FBI kicked me out of the office. And they said that I owed them back money. I don't intend to pay them that. And then they sent me another bill through email and they said that you owe us $10,000 for the move that we paid for to move you to a job that we canceled you from in New Mexico. And I've been dealing with that on the back end. So you talk about the weaponization and hassling you over little things like taxes. Um, and, and this that's administ- not a little it's, thing it's, because it's, it's the administrative FBI. bullshit. Yeah, it's over and over again. Yeah. It's the FBI, it's the DOJ sending you a bill and saying- we're coming for you. And then they also sent me a letter that said they accused me of 10 different uh, crimes that they were investigating with their internal affairs division because I was an employee, unless I quit, which I did because I don't need them anymore. And honestly, I didn't consider myself an employee there. If they wanted me to break up with them because they broke up with me already, I did the same. And I don't mean to make it about me in this case, but I, I do think that is the kinship that you and I have. Um, yeah, I broke the, up with America, you know? Which is which is what we were talking about yesterday. And, and yeah. I know you called me and, and, and you were tearful about it. And I, I can, I, we started off and I was like, oh my God, like, what do we, I don't even know what to say to you, but here's the questions that I think people are going to have. Were you scared getting on that plane to go there and translate the book? And if not, did something change when you were there? No, I mean, I had like, I was scared about the death threats and stuff like that, but I was excited about seeing Moscow, but I was coming right back. It was like a quick trip. So I didn't have that in my mind. Um, I was more apprehensive about like, you know, testifying before Congress later on, that was something. Um, Were they gonna come after me again? And, you know, the death threats were really concerning me because I had people show up at my daughter's house and try to break in. I mean, there's police reports. My horse was almost stolen back in 2020. And then again, when I was here in Russia, so that's happened. Um, You know, so, so I had like anxiety about that stuff. I'd call it anxiety, but I was excited about going for one week to Russia and seeing it finally with my own eyes. And then when it was clear, I couldn't go back. Oof, that was, um, and then, yeah, I just, I would, but one thing stopped when I was here, I stopped having like the panic attacks I was having almost like you and I were talking about how, like how scary it is, how you lay at four or five in the morning, wondering if that's the day the knock's gonna come, mm-hmm. that's the day. Mm-hmm. Is this the day? Is this the day? And you just, and it's like you're waiting for that other shoe to drop. 
you know, because I had been threatened so many times that the FBI was going to come raid me like or bring me into custody for what? I don't, you know, whatever. Yeah, your cortisol would, levels are off the chart. It's like living in a war zone. I mean, it's a psychological yeah. war, but it's a war nonetheless. Yeah, and they went after people I knew. So like that Uhuru group, they raided them and then they went after them and now they're, they took away their passports and they're in prison. They're going to face eight to 10 years in prison for sowing discord, right. which I mean, shoot, I do that every day. <laughs> I, I mean, feel like I was, you have an American right to sow discord. It's actually part of the first amendment. Not anymore. Not according to the recent DOJ. So Merrick, not under Merrick Garland, you know, not under Biden. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the loss of our liberty, our freedom of expression, our freedom of speech, and our ability to whistleblow, our ability to call out what's wrong and make it better. And I think that that's the, you know, that's that's a damn shame. And I, I really get annoyed when people say I'm not a patriot because I'm not, first of all, I'm not like, I've never been like you, Kyle, okay? I didn't work for the FBI. I wasn't like, you know, like that. But I did work for the Senate and the Congress and I took it seriously and I and I did like being a public servant and I do care about my country and I care about my fellow Americans. I don't like Biden and I don't like that regime and it is a regime. They're basically making money off our taxes and they're they're, you know, laundering it basically. You know, I think about my father, my father's dead, my mother's dead and we were pretty estranged but I wonder what he would think about all the military contracts he probably would have made money but like would he have been okay with it because it's gotten really ugly i right. mean i always ask people what's the cost if you say yes and you go along with it and you get your paycheck and you get your retirement yeah. or your pension or you get a big you know payday mm -hmm. from a contract where are you going to spend that you can spend that in america that's tyrannical yeah. that's the real question so now you know what i want to do is testify before congress from moscow and I wish there was a way I could do that. I want I'll to- I'll bring my laptop in. They can they can go to me. They don't even have to use any US government uh, stuff. I'm more than happy to pay for the connection. That sounds Tell hilarious. Tell Matt Gates. Tell Matt Gates. Like, We're telling you know, him right now. We're yeah. telling Matt Gates. Uh, Matt Gates, let's set this thing up. I want to see a remote testimony from Moscow. Look, there is precedent for things that are quote unquote enemies. They brought in the Japanese submarine commander who sunk the USS Indianapolis at the end of World War II. And they oh, brought him right. in for a court-martial, and they had him go and convict the captain of the USS Indianapolis of failing to zig and zag properly in this military tribunal. There, There is plenty of reasons that you might bring somebody in from another country that might even be considered hostile. And so right. I, I think doing it digitally in the in the COVID era, the post-COVID world we live in, you can do it instantaneously. It'll be really late your time. That's the only thing. You'll have to be doing a late night. You have to have some care. coffee. I don't care. I want to do it. Yeah. You know, it would, mean a, it would mean a lot to me. I know I, I know I'm never going to get justice. Right. Like, I know that. But I would like to make it easier for the person behind me. And, and right now I feel like they might get the impression that, oh, yeah, this works. This playbook wor works. We chased her away. I'm continuing my work. I'm going to keep working, keep exposing Biden. So I'm not going to shut up and I'm going to keep keep pushing um, because we need now I have the freedom to do it. And I, I don't have the DOJ hanging over my head. <clears throat> Can you imagine um, the, the, the little eight-year-old girl that was standing on the stump that was reading Karl Marx to her classmates? Could she have ever fathomed that you would have sought a safe haven in former Soviet Russia from the United States? Is that is that the most, is that a thing you could ever even imagine any time in your life? No, no, I really didn't see that coming. 
Um, in fact, I didn't see it coming that I would be accused of being a Russian agent by Biden's people. So that was a sideways thing when that happened. Yeah. So this has all been very much a surprise. But, you know, you, you take you, what I've learned is to, you know, adapt and survive, you know, survive and adapt and adapt and survive. Mm -hmm. And that's what you do. And um, but there's no reason why I can't thrive here. There's no reason why I can't rebuild my life. Somehow I'll be able to maybe come back to my country of origin. But I don't know if it's going to act like if 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 there it's going to continue to have leaders like Joe Biden, then no, there's no reason for me to go back. But, you know, I'll go back when it's safe and say sure. hi. Otherwise, well, people are going to have to come here and see me. And they might. Uh, especially I, I keep hearing people say, why don't you go to Russia? I hear there's a great expat community. And it's like, I keep hearing that too. And you say it like, it's a mean thing. I keep wondering you're rolling around. You don't even speak Russian and you seem to be doing okay, which is kind of amazing. I'm not, I don't want to leave my country either. I don't want to take my kids anywhere else that, you know, first and foremost, but, uh, it is, it is truly interesting to see that. I want to, I want to buzz you about your interactions with the Russian government. What have they been and um and and with what agencies and, and what kind of people i haven't really um had any interactions other than like going to the office to sign up for the paperwork for the asylum and then doing that process and they ask you a few questions and then now it's just in that bureaucratic wherever it is space on someone's desk i assume and that's it um now i'm just waiting so i haven't had much you know i've been working um, with my podcast, I work with TNT radio, which is out of Australia. Mm -hmm. And I do, um, I do some, uh, commentary for RT once in a while, but that's it. And as far as expats, RT is Russian times. Oh, no, it's Russia today, Russia today. Sorry. Um, and, uh, as far as expats, you were mentioning that I have met Irish, English, Australians, um, that have come here and I have met people that have sought asylum and then have made their life here and are much happier. And they said they don't want to go back even if Why? they could. What, what are they, what um, are they looking for? What are they finding? Um, they're finding not, they're not having to be afraid to have their political or religious beliefs, whatever that is. Some of them are like Orthodox Christian or just Catholic. Um, they're feeling, um, like a sense of home for their children. They many of them have children and have them in school and said, it's just a much superior education system and that it's free, um, you know, and that, I mean, private school costs money, but like not, you know, not what it is in the U S and it's just, it's just a much more thriving economy. Like it's more moving towards the future. Um, so they're excited about it. People are more accepting. It's a, it's a kind of a laid back in a way. I know it sounds so odd because right now there's a war raging, but I have to say it's pretty laid back. It's not because you're not having the sense of desperation that's going on in the cities right now in Seattle and in San Francisco and in New York and in some of the rural communities. In Chicago. You don't have the drugs here. There's no, they're very strict about drugs. There isn't no drug use and no marijuana is not legal. So if you're into that, that's not the place for you. Um, it's not legal and it's not wanted. So they're very strict about all drugs. And what, what um, about alcohol abuse? I always hear that a lot of Russians die from, from abusing alcohol. Is that something you're seeing at all in the city? I've seen two drunks. Like I've seen some drunk men. Um, 
I haven't seen like what they're talking about. That's more from the nineties when there was like no money and people were literally just like, it was pretty bad. Are we just um, getting disinformation that's just been fed from like a nineties yeah. like hit reel? Is that what's going on? I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past yeah. anybody at this point. I think alcoholism, they have a pushback against alcoholism here because I think, you know, it was a problem. It's like Ireland too, Irish people and English people up at the pub, you know, it's kind of that, but like, no, they, um, they have a real, uh, pushback against alcoholism and that kind of thing here. But during the nineties, there was a lot of alcoholism. So that's kind of the stereotype, um, from that, I think, but, um, yeah, you don't hear like, like right now it's the middle of the night and, um, you can, my windows are open and I hear I'm no a, sirens. You don't hear sirens. You don't hear people shouting. You don't hear anything like that ever rarely i don't know i've never even seen a fight and like, i've walked around and the other thing that's really cool is i can walk around at night as a woman and feel safe i don't feel worried um it's everything's well lit there's a, usually a lot of people out because you know it's summertime and it's warm and it gets light early um but there are quiet times when there's not a lot of people and it still feels safe when you go down under bridges, like Gorky Park has this section where you go along the river and then you go down underneath this bridge. I remember I kind of had this like bracing myself because, you know, like in the cities in Seattle or New York, you go down under a bridge, there's going to be homeless people, druggies, possibly getting, you know, For sure. robbed or whatever. No, it's like you go down <laughs> underneath the bridge and there's just more families walking and people going to the metro or going wherever. And it was like, okay, this is really safe. I mean, it's a city, so I'm sure there's pickpockets. You got to, you know, watch your stuff a bit. But I haven't had anything happen. Um, I have been lost pretty much almost every day. <laughs> I'll be honest. It's, I, I have a bad sense of direction. But anyway, but, um, you know, they will go out of their way to help me. Like someone will see me on my phone just looking confused, and they'll walk up and go, uh, you know, in Russian, do you need help? And then I'll say, I don't speak Russian. And then they'll say, oh, I speak a choo -choo English. And then they'll try to help me. And I never know where I am because the names of the streets are so long. And, you know, so I, I'm, I'm struggling with the language a bit. Um, but overall, I'm, I'm getting along fine, you know. It's, so. it's, that's so crazy. You know, there's a Scorpion song that's called Winds of Change that keeps running through my head. That one point, you know what I'm talking about? There's a, a whistle yeah. solo in there and they talk about going through Gorky, Gorky Park and how things are changing. Uh, and yeah. anyway, I, I just, all of our, our conversation yesterday and today has led me to think about that. And it's, it, it really is. You know, I think the East is, you know, it's, it's become a multipolar world and the East is rising and the West is falling. You're and pissing off the CIA again. Why would you do that on I my know, podcast? I know, I know, but, but the West, all the West has to do is become a partner and become like part of it. So then there's the competition is not with war machines, but with just um, economic, like Donald Trump. You know, I have to go back to Donald Trump because I'm not, again, I never supported him in the past, but he did make a point. Economic competition is what you want. You don't want war. You just want healthy competition. And then you have innovation. He converted um, you. How did he do this? Um, I think by watching him like fight through all those indictments. My goodness. My goodness. I Yeah, yeah you're so you're experiencing a little, you know, your own taste of it. I think that uh, many people mm -hmm. empathize with the Donald Trump scenario. Um, is there have you ever had a conversation over there about what's going on here? Does anyone even know what we're doing to ourselves? Yeah, I mean at RT, I've made my commentaries. They know my positions. 
um, so they understand. What do they talk yeah, about when they're not broadcasting? Actually, they try to be more defending of U.S. It's kind of interesting. They think I'm a little harsh um, because yeah. because to some of the um, young people, especially here, they think America is going to be great because that was the image they had. And I'm like, no, it's not great right now. It's not great. You don't want to go there. And they think they want to go there. And I'm like, no, because imagine they'd be suffering Russophobia. Yeah. And they might even end up in jail because the United States is so mean to Russian nationals, like what they did to Maria Butina. She was not a spy. She was not a spy. And everybody knows that. There's even an article say that that's called The Spy Who Wasn't. Mm-hmm. She was totally set up and, and made... And actually, they used her case. The same judge that's indicting Trump indicted Maria Butina. Right. And using the FARA Act, which was never used before. Which is not being so, used on Charlie McGonigal, by the way. It is not? No. Okay. So what? Okay. What do you think about that? I don't know. It's like upside down world. There's no counts of FARA violations in the indictments that I've seen despite the fact that he was receiving money and working on behalf of Olag uh, I'm an oligarch. Yeah. Interesting. And you theoretically were facing it. Up is down, huh? And I'm not working. Yeah. And I'm definitely not working for an oligarch. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, when, when they make people out to be uh, Putin, you know, agents or whatever, it's like, he must have so many people on payroll. Oh man. Yeah. I, sounds great. And why are so many of us must poor? Be really wealthy. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no, but, um, Seriously, though, the that case is really interesting to me because he was accusing other people of what he was doing. It's just up is down. I mean, he worked in the FBI. That how did he go to work every day and do and face his coworkers? Sociopath, maybe. I don't know. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, at least Robert Hansen was like a nervous wreck all the time, is what everyone says. That he basically was constantly, you know, had explosive temper and had all the pressure of what was going on. And I just interviewed his girlfriend. You can go back and watch it on our show. Uh, I did it on Monday okay. of this week. And you can watch her talk about it. And she said he didn't give off any air. He didn't care. He walked around. He had a family. He had a wife. He was hanging out with her. She thought it was cool. He was introducing her as his girlfriend to uh, to the wife's cousin. Rented uh, Rife's cousin rented the apartment for him. Presented as girlfriend, as far as she knows, like they may have never even had any separation. They, he may have been married the whole time. He's obviously back with the wife right now. Just bizarre world. And, you know, I grew up watching Robert Hansen and Alter James, like basically get thrown in prison forever. That's Amazing. what we used to do to people that betrayed the country in the oath. And now we got people like you that ran to the country that we were being betrayed to. It's totally strange. How do you, how do you feel? How do you feel? Like, does that, does that make you feel uncomfortable in some ways when you have me, when you hear me sing the praises of Russia, because I'm just telling you my real experience right no, now. No, it doesn't bother like, me at all. It just makes me know okay. how far this America is not what it was. I mean, we're a nation yeah. that is post-constitutional, I feel like. Uh, I say it a lot of times on our show. I, I feel like we've, we've abandoned the principles that were why we were so proud of being American. Do you think Biden's going to be held accountable or Hunter Biden are going to be accountable no. for anything? Do you? Okay, going to walk? Do you? No. See, I'm not, I'm, I'm not objective. And there's just this little part of me that thinks the good guys are going to win, you know, that they're going to be the, their villainy really is going to be exposed. But I know realistically, that's not. I think realistically, the only way that something really, I don't know the path. I just tweeted about this the other day. So I put it in public already. I already own it, but mm-hmm. I don't know how we avoid violence in this country. 
because when you when you weaponize the federal government and you delegitimize the things that are supposed to be sacrosanct, like our judiciary, a blind lady justice that's supposed to weigh people. You know, we always knew that the, the people who had more money and more access got a little bit of a better deal. That was always the case. Everyone always knew that if you had a little more money, you could, uh, you know, hire a better defense attorney. And maybe that defense attorney plays golf with the judge and maybe you get a sweetheart deal. Like that was always there. Everyone knew that. But you mm -hmm. didn't think that the FBI was going to kick down your door and shoot you if you were 75 years old and overweight because you were an asshole. Like, yeah. and I don't know the guy, maybe he wasn't, maybe he was a really sweetheart and he was just an asshole online. I have an uncle that reminds me of the guy they just shot. Do you know the FBI shot a guy today? They did? No. In Memphis, you're not gonna hear about it. That's three in a week we've shot, all SWAT shots. And I'm sure they were all justified. That's the other problem. But like, imagine imagine a federal police force in another country that, that has shot three citizens for violations of the law or whatever. It's just... Man, I can't remember a time when that was the thing in the FBI. They're not even talking about it. I mean, you know. They and never I'm, do. They never yeah. do. They control that media. It doesn't get out there. You want to talk about the stuff that we used to see when we were younger looking at the Soviet Union. It's like, of course they quashed the story. Of course the only press that is doing it is the free press. Right now, the only people that are reporting on this stuff is local news and the suspendables, me and my buddies. And that's crazy. So right. it doesn't bother me that people are saying things or I just know that if you say things nice about Russia, then people are going to go and say the same thing about me that they said about you, which is that I'm a Russian agent, which is freaking right. hilarious. Like yeah. I've got, I got a, I got a Smith and Wesson here that was made on the year that I was born. It's a American revolver. I get about as red blooded as it gets. I got yeah. American flags all over the place. I don't have any tattoos, but if I did, it would probably be an American flag. And yet they will accuse you of calling out this country when it's doing things that are wrong. Well, um, and because, it's not even calling out the country. It's calling out the elites that are running course. it, the ones that are benefiting. And, you know, like my, my thing about Leon Panetta that I'm so disappointed about is that when I knew him as an intern, I looked up to him and I, and I really thought he was serious and really wanted to do good things. And now I see his path and he literally was just all about the power. His son was ordained basically as a congressman in the same district as if it's now royalty. These Democrats think that, okay, Chuck now Chuck Grassley's trying to do the same thing. Yeah. He's trying to, to give to it to his grandson. Son, right? Grandson, or whatever. I think. Grandson. Grandson. Yeah, it's like- Because he's a thousand years old because he's he's almost a yeah. hundred years old right now. That's why. And people love Chuck Grassley. They get mad at you when you when you call out any of their sacred cows. But look, I don't care if you're Mitch McConnell or if you're Dianne Feinstein or if you're Chuck Grassley or if you're Joe Biden, you're too freaking old. And honestly, no. I think Donald Trump is too old, but he may be the only way that he stays out of jail. And so I can get behind the idea of it. I was not 100% behind Donald Trump until the third indictment. And then it's like, man, are you kidding me? Yeah. Look, I want him to have a comeback like freaking Sly Stallone did in Rocky 8 or whatever, Rocky 11. Because yeah. it's like... I can't have the guy lose on that. You can't send the man to jail because he doesn't win the election. That sounds horrific. That sounds like what I thought Russia was like when I was a kid. Yeah, and I, I just think it's so sad um, the way, you know, this is all kind of unfolding. And, and they're just blatant about it. They're not trying to hide it. Like the Democratic Party is not even hiding it. They're not. There's like they're, they're just every time there's a new thing about Hunter Biden and a new revelation about the bribery and the scandals around around the money laundering in Ukraine and Romania and China. Boom, there's another indictment for Trump. And but you now these it. are I serious. The ones that are in the states are, are going to be harder. Those are going to be hard for him. Yeah, there's an argument. There's an argument that's being made right now. Mark Meadows is trying to bring his case federally. I talked about it on the show Um 
that they're they're literally trying to bring it up. It's the same thing that you do when a, uh, a a federal agent gets involved in a shooting. What they'll do is they try to federalize the case under the fact that the person was operating under federal authority and fulfilling their federal job, and then the supremacy clause comes in. And then in theory, you get tried in federal court and or it gets dismissed by the DOJ because the DOJ is not going to go do it because they understand the Constitution. And yet we have a weaponized DOJ too. Yep. So the only way this works is if this man gets in office, which is crazy. I don't want to vote who the president of the United States is based on whether or not that guy should go to jail because right. our country is unfair. Yeah. I, I wasn't mad about his policies. I thought he did a good job until the COVID lockdown. So it's like, all right, fine. Uh, if if I have to choose the lesser of two evils, it's a no brainer. Donald Trump wins that hands down, you know, and yet. Well, and, that, and that phrase, the lesser of two evils, though, is really kind of sad, isn't it? It's always been there, has it not? Evil is just evil. So there's not lesser of them. Well, there was always it was always a lesser than I feel like nobody ever perfectly, you know, nobody's ever perfectly represented you and no one's ever perfectly represented me. And so no. we were always choosing somebody who agreed with us most of the time. But yeah. uh, the idea that if you didn't agree with them, they'd put you in jail is a new that's new. Yeah. And so I, I took action and I decided to um, not go back and face that because you know the frankly you know and i said this to you yesterday when i was kind of tearful like i'm just not finding anything about my case i can't you know i mean i'm gonna miss my daughter's wedding i'm gonna miss my daughter's graduation from mm -hmm. masters i'm missing these life events this is heartbreaking you know and it's my country i was born in monterey california and i loved it and i'll never see it maybe again and it's simply because i told the truth right it doesn't make any sense and i'm trying to like make sense of it and it doesn't and it's hard and um i don't want anybody to have to go through what i'm going through but if i'm gonna have to make that choice and i have to live here um i'm gonna make the best of it and frankly I i'm kind of lucky in a way because at least i have a roof over my head i have a way to make a living i have people that care about me already i mean they're very loving and caring here and, and that's the thing you always hear about Russians being really cold. I've not experienced that. They're very warm, very loving. And they smile at you. That's all a bunch of bullshit. I was at the subway the other day and someone smiled at me and I smiled back. Like, you know, all, the, all these myths. They do give, you know, space. Like it takes a while to get to know someone, but that's also in most cities. Like it takes that's, you. Like, and that's a very Slavic thing anyhow. I just feel like yeah. all Slavs are like that. Yeah. So there you have do it. You, but do anyway. You have a do you have a faith tradition that you, uh, you, well, I'm Catholic. do you go to Catholic mass? Um, I was going to try to actually, I was going to look at some of the Orthodox, uh, Christian churches cause they're really beautiful. And I was going to look at that, but yes, there's a beautiful Catholic church here. A couple of them. Yeah. And, um, there's actually uh, a priest here that is friends of a British man that I know who he wanted to introduce me to an Irish priest. I love it. Well, you if you go, you give me the update on that. I hope you'll come back and give us an update on your status, too. You don't have to be a stranger. Anytime you want to come on here and let us know what's going on, give us okay. a different, uh, wider perspective on there. And I'll figure out a time that I can come on and be on your uh, your TNT show as well. I'd be happy to. If, uh, love that. We'll, we'll work out a time to do a tape delay. Since, uh, folks, if you don't know, uh, Tara's show goes on exactly the same time as the Kyle Serafin show is aired live. We overlap each other, although she is um, eight hours ahead of us. So I know it's getting very, very late there. Tell people where they can uh, reach out to you and give messages of support, where they can uh, buy your book and all that kind of stuff. Just kind of plug all the things that you might do, because I know people are going to want to know more. I kind of made it easy. It's one place, tarareadpodcast.com. So R-E-A-D-E, 
is how you spell my last name, tarareadpodcast.com. It's where you have links to my book, links to everything, and my Twitter account at Reed Alexandra. You can find me um, rage tweeting once in a while. Sometimes I'm tweeting nice videos of Moscow. It depends on my mood. Yeah, fair um, enough. I rage tweeted about Biden a couple of times today. You can have fun with that. I know. Uh, yeah. And uh, do you know that your the, do you know that your hardcover book is selling for a dollar cheaper than your softback your uh, paperback book on Amazon? <laughs> it's funny. I don't know why, but it is. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, and yeah, people can I mean, find no, your memoir there. Yeah. And I'm doing the Audible. Um, I'm adding, actually, um, what's coming with the book is I'm adding an epilogue called Moscow. So I'm going to talk about Moscow. And I'm also doing an audio version of the book. So that's coming. Fantastic. So get ready. Yeah. Does uh, Rose McGowan, she does the four, she does the uh, foreword, which is amazing because she is definitely a lefty and probably not a big Donald Trump fan. And yet there are things you can all agree on that people shouldn't have to yeah. be victims of powerful people. Well, Tara, thanks so much for spending more hours than you planned on with us. I do really appreciate it. I really enjoy talking to you. I'm glad uh, you look better than the last time I talked to you. You look less stressed, and I, I hope that is the case. Even though it's tough to be away, I'm, I'm glad you're in a place where you feel safer because I know what that war looks like and what it what it, uh, what it does. It's exhausting. So. All right. And good luck to you, too, and your family. Please give your family my love. Take care. I will. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas, America. And we are very grateful to you for joining us. Thanks so much. Please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple, which you can go ahead and find in the show notes directly below me. And we will read them on the show. Like this one here from Falcon. Falculone? Hmm. Says, love the show, five stars, spicy takes on the state of America. Great guests. Just like this one today, we want to say thanks to Tara Reed for joining us from Moscow and giving you her inside story, the uh, the scoop on what she's living through, and why she made the decision to stay over there. I think it's pretty chilling, but I think it's really important that we hear these things. We do want to say uh, thanks to all the folks that it takes to build this show up, our guests, you, and our technical producer, Ryan Matta, who does a fantastic job. Please follow Ryan on Twitter at Ryan Matta Media. That's M-A-T-T-A. You can also find him on True Social at Ryan Matta, M-A-T-T-A. You can find him later on this day on Rumble, on LFA TV show, his show, Matta of Fact, M-A-T-T-A. You get the pattern. You know what's going on here. Folks, don't forget to like this video. Scroll on down. Give it that thumbs up, that green piss off the CIA if that's what it's doing, upset those who are trying to run counterintelligence cases on American citizens who simply have some disagreements with our political structure. And we will see you again tomorrow for Friendly Friday. Hang in there. I know it's getting rough out there, folks, but um, we're going to keep telling the stories, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live weekdays on rumble.com slash Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, Truth Social, and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.